And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight and a new year. Tonight is the first night of the new year of 2023. And our program this morning or this evening, whatever, is going to encompass what kind of has trailed off at the end of last year, 2022, and what could be coming in 2023. And what we're going to do is we're going to approach this from several different directions. We're going to approach this from the physics, um, better known uh, on this segment of tonight's program as uh, hyperdimensional astrology. Our first guest is Rick Levine. And he has been looking at the celestial configurations, the alignments, and you know from past history on this program that those things do have an effect. The question, of course, is how precise and specific can you be? And we're going to spend the first uh, few minutes of the show talking about that. And then in the second hour, uh, Steve Bassett is on deck. There have been some major behind-the-scenes developments in the UAP, UFO government, slow, creeping, agonizingly rusty disclosure process. And there's a lot of, disinfo- let me try that again. There's a lot of disinformation out there from mainstream outlets, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post. And there is a letter which has been making the rounds from one of the inside players who was very, uh, uh, pivotal and uh, uh, particularly uh, relevant in the early uh, years of this latest disclosure phase back uh, in 2017, 2018. So Stephen has actually written an editorial and he's going to be uh, referencing that tonight. And then in the third hour, we have uh, a lot of members of what I'm calling the Enterprise family who are researchers and colleagues and uh, investigators and friends of the show, uh, people who have been stalwart and supported us all these years, and every one of them has an opinion or perspective or an analysis of what could be coming in 2023. So, and as you all know, you know, we're not dealing essentially in what is colloquially termed mainstream politics. We're looking at things that are out of the box, things that have extraordinary high leverage potential, uh, not the least of which, of course, would be the general acknowledgement by government and media sources that we are not alone, that we are living in a very inhabited galaxy and the solar system is rife with all kinds of visitors, Um, not quite sure where they're coming from, not quite sure what their intentions are, but there is ample evidence that uh, there's a lot of stuff going on that the mainstream media is not covering. In fact, uh, per Stephen's input, you're going to hear about some actual rather intriguing efforts by the mainstream media to downplay everything and pretend it's not there and it will all go. I want to start tonight, if you can refer to uh, the section of the website where we have something we call Radio with Pictures. I want to direct you, for those of you who are new to the show, uh, you're listening to us on some device, obviously. Uh, So what you want to do is you want to click on the um, uh, URL, which is our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, 
which says with a very elegant graphic that I blatantly stole from uh, a 1930s movie of things to come in 2023. I've always loved that graphic because it's so evocative of uh, what we're talking about going on right now. And you click on that, that takes you to the guest page and under the, where it says right under the banner, which duplicates at the top of the guest page, uh, where it says of things to come 2023, the enterprise family under that, it says to listen to show. Below that it says guest page and then fast links to items. Click on my name, which is the first one there. That takes you to the appropriate section of the guest page, which features items for what we call radio with pictures. Last night, actually twice last night, uh, repeating from what happened on the NBC television network a couple days before, um, NBC ran, NBC News ran at least twice on MSNBC and I think at least once on the main broadcast network, a special which was called very provocatively Battlefield Space to the Moon and Beyond. And i am got the whole thing up there. It's posted on YouTube so you can watch it if you missed it on, uh, on, on television. Did not record it. In fact, I missed it because there was no pre-announced publicity. They just suddenly put it up there. And fortunately, I was able to go to the YouTube page for NBC and find it. So that's the link. It, I wanted to see what the network, what one of the main broadcast networks take on space that has happened in the last year and space to come in the next year uh, would be from NBC News. And it's very interesting because their angle of attack, their input, their their approach to the whole subject was basically we should be getting ready, ready for battles in space. Now, nowhere during the program do they mention ETs. They're basically the big bad guys are uh, the Russians and the Chinese. But there are all kinds of inputs from the uh, Space Force people, from NASA, from astronauts, from uh, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, from political people, um, a lot of Pentagon input uh, that basically we're at war even now in space in an invisible war and that what has happened is that the, the 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 background machinations of battles in space between participants from earth has been moved from as one of the uh interviewees said from behind the curtain into the mainstream so the whole take on the coming year in space was a background of space war and i know that uh, stephen's going to have some very cogent things to say about this. Obviously, my perception is that we are being set up for when we find anyone out there who is not from Earth, and that's going to be a major part of tonight's discussion. Will that happen in 2023 uh, or will it not? Uh, the context, the position, the posture is going to be uh, they are potential enemies. This appears to be what this network special repeated as far as I know three times in the last couple of days appears to be setting the ground for. So against that backdrop, now you want to move down to item number two. Uh, as you know, we've been following a lot of these uh, 
return missions to the moon, including some from countries which have never gone to the moon before, like South Korea. And one of the things I've discovered that we're going to talk about in some detail later on in the program is that some of these players, some of these nations or commercial activities which are going to the moon, some of them for the first time ever, they appear to be leaking information regarding the real moon, the moon with artificial extraterrestrial structures on it, this incredible lunar-wide dome. But they're not announcing it as a scientific or engineering discovery. They're posting it on these various websites, just like it's some kind of artistic logo, and you're supposed to think of it, unless you are in the know, as just a background, not relevant to real data coming from real missions to the real moon. And I have two examples. Number two, this is what I found on the uh, Nuri uh, website, which is listed there right underneath the title. Denuri Moon Third Dome Logo Enhanced. It turns out that what they're doing is they're putting together real lunar images from somewhere. That's the image you see in number two. And over that image, they are superimposing artistic graphics, lettering, logos, typeface, fonts, the usual thing you would do if you were creating uh, an art piece as opposed to uh, real information of a scientific bent. And when you look at their galleries where they list images that have been acquired by the spacecraft, of which there are almost none, and none since Denuri, which is the South Korean mission, unmanned, about a 1,500-pound spacecraft carrying three different sets of cameras, as well as a bunch of other very complex and very sophisticated scientific instrumentation to measure, among other things, the moon's magnetic field. When you look at the galleries where the imagery from Denuri should be posted since they arrived back on December 17th, there is nothing new. Now, as I've said to some of my uh, friends and colleagues over the last week, we were kind of gearing up to do this uh, New Year's night show. Uh, this is bizarre. Every time a nation goes to the moon and manages to get there, at least as far as lunar orbit, and I'm talking now about the Israeli mission, the Indian mission, uh, the Japanese missions, certainly U.S. missions, the first thing the new players do when they arrive at the moon is to brag. They publish all kinds of neat imagery from lunar orbit. Denuri, the South Korean unmanned mission on which a NASA camera called the Shadow Cam is quietly flying, courtesy of Dr. Mike Malin, and I do think the title Shadow Cam is so elegant at so many Dickinsonian levels for that experiment. It weighs, by the way, 33 pounds. For this mission, for the first time ever, when a new nation or a new commercial venture arrives in lunar orbit, they have taken and posted zero new images as of tonight. Zero new images. Instead, new imaging coming off as artwork graphics 
is appearing mysteriously and spontaneously kind of throughout the website in various categories for areas of the website you can explore to look at various details of the mission, such as the amazing graphic in number two. Because not only does it show what looks like a normal graphic uh, in terms of art, but that whole moon on the bottom is a real photograph. It's in color, and it shows in stunning clarity all the physical features of this lunar-wide dome that we've been reporting on now from the Artemis mission, the NASA mission testing the uh, manned spacecraft that's going to go back to the moon with people in the next uh, year or so, sometime toward the end of 2023, early 2024. And yet it's not listed as data. It's not listed as evidence. It's not listed as scientific information. It's merely posted as a graphic. The same with number three. This appeared on the homepage several days ago, and it shows an astonishing moon, which has no business looking like that at all. Because as you know, the moon is airless. Um, it's a vacuum. The atmosphere that it has, as measured by both the Apollo missions and by the Indian Chandra missions that have subsequently followed Apollo by about 40 years and sampled the actual atmosphere with mass spectrometers. So we're not looking at remote sensing. We're looking at actual molecules entering instruments and being reported in terms of their atomic weight, you know, their uh, ion configuration, whether they're molecules or atoms, things like that. Uh, we know that the lunar atmosphere is like one trillion trillion trillionth of the density of the Earth's atmosphere and has zero, zero optical effects on anything except when you look at these photographs. Now look at number four. This is an enlargement that's been enhanced in terms of uh, sharpening and detail. And, and actually, I've, I've kind of put a couple of images together to give us more tonal range. This is what a special camera on the Denuri spacecraft call a pole cam or a polarimetry camera, meaning a camera which measures the polarization of light, light vibrates in various planes. Circular polarization is when it vibrates in a 360 circle. Plane polarization is when light bounces on a particular angular configuration at one angle, and you can use filters to filter out the background and only amplify that particular polarization. This camera has several filters and two cameras which are wide angle that can measure supposedly the polarization coming from the surface of the moon during the Denuri mission. Well, this image in number four is an enlargement of what I believe to be, but of course there's no caption, no scientific information, no detail at all, but from the logic of the instrumentation and the logic of the geometry of the moon we are seeing, it was taken in space by Denuri en route to the moon before the spacecraft crossed the lunar orbit for the first time on this long, looping, extended, slow boat to China technique, which gets them to the moon, uh, not directly in three days like Apollo, but takes them like four months going the slow boat route. But they save a tremendous amount of energy in doing that. So you can send a heavy spacecraft on a light rocket and get there if you just trade velocity 
proper time. So that's what they did, and I almost know exactly where in space that item number four, that photograph, had to be taken, and it had to be taken by the pole cam, the polarimetry camera through a polarizing filter, because why? Well, we know from Earth experiments and data from centuries ago that when light is bounced off glass, it is polarized which means if you want to find the glass of the ancient dome around the moon, you take images through a polarimetry polarizing, which will suppress the background, amplify the polarized reflections from the glass, and voila, there is your dome. And that's what we apparently are seeing in image number three, image number four, image number two, and later on in the morning, we'll get to uh, uh, some other images that they have posted in this very oblique, tangential fashion, where obviously somebody is leaking, and it apparently is being done with the highest level um, permissions from those running the South Korean space program. And they're giving us what we should be seeing, but of course, they're not saying a scientific word about it. No press conferences, no captions, no statements, no explanations. It's like if you understand the science, you understand what they're doing. If you don't, you're up a creek without a paddle. Item number five and six. Um, we're looking here, and, and actually we'll, we'll do this when we get into probably hour number two, because I want to bring Rick on. Um, Rick um, um, uh, Levine is a very, very interesting guy. I've known him for decades. Um, I never realized that we would be discussing, uh, among other things, uh, hyperdimensional physics. Uh, he's a professional astrologer. He's become a respected leader in the global astrology community. He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, um, co-founder of StarIQ.com a founding trustee of Kepler College and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. And there's so much more you can read his web page there on the other side of midnight. Rick, welcome back to the other side of midnight and to 2023. It's always a pleasure to be here, Richard. And, and I have to admit that when the show started this evening, and there was a bit of technical meltdown just prior to going on. All I could think of is the fact that Mars and Mercury are retrograde. Mercury just turned retrograde. And, of course, you know, technical snafus are not uncommon. You know, people say that all the time these days, but I don't think they understand physically what's going on. When planets... Oh, I do. Yeah, but the audience... So why don't <laughs> you explain, sure you do, too. Why don't you explain to the audience why this cliche now, Mercury retrograde actually has real physics meaning in communications, electronics, and even human relations. Well, it, it really actually comes from a few different directions, and I have a strong feeling you'll add another one when I'm done. First of all, uh, just like being in a train or in a subway car in New York City, when there's a train on the track right next to you and you're going faster than it, it looks like it's going backwards. It's not really going backwards. But when every planet, real planets, meaning Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, 
and everything else out there, when they, on their normal path, get closer to Earth than they are at any other time in their cycle, they're like that train on the track next to us. We lose perspective, and they look like they're going backwards. So the first thing to understand is that when a planet is retrograde, Mercury included, it means it's closer to Earth than it usually is, and you can almost think of the radio station coming in louder than one that's distant. Number two, and you know, and and you know, it, it, it's really interesting, but this may be even um, more important um, that when a planet goes retrograde. It's almost like it's stirring up the field because from Earth's point of view, it actually appears to be going backwards. And so it's almost like, like stirring the stew and then all of a sudden stirring in, in, in an opposite direction. Yeah, I'd, I'd liken it to stirring the cream in your coffee when you pour it in backwards. Okay, yeah, that, 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 that one works for me. Um, but, but I think that more than anything – you know, from a standpoint of, um, of, 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 of a quantum perspective, everything happens in relationship to something else. And so we're looking at a distinct relationship between um, the Earth and these various planets. And when their signals are so close to Earth and they get louder, it's like we, we can't handle it. The, the technical snafus that are associated with Mercury retrograde are simply because there's more information coming and going. We, we, we kind of work ourselves into a place. It's almost like the old telephone operators. Yeah, they reach a point where they're plugging these things and making connections to making yeah. calls, and the lines are so flooded, they just quit. They give up. They can't do it. And that's what happens um, often in a retrograde. The, the other thing of note, though, is, and Johannes Kepler actually wrote about this, and that is that, because Mercury is the fastest moving of the planets from Earth's perspective, when it apparently slams on its brakes and goes backwards, we know it doesn't, it just looks like it does, that's the most radical change. It's like being in a little Ferrari going, you know, 80 miles an hour, slamming on the brakes and going into reverse, you'd notice it. But if you were in, a, in an 18-wheeler, if you were in an 18-wheeler truck, and yeah, Rick, really hang on a second. I'm hearing crosstalk on blog talk, Keith. I'm, I'm hearing Barbara, so if we can... I didn't need the whole thing. Okay, okay. Uh, Barbara, we don't need, you know, uh, there's some kind of a crossed wire. Rick, you're hearing it live right now. We're having a technical problem. Um, to you me... You need to mute, Barbara. Okay, well, okay, but I'm going to need that pot when I get to the break, so... Okay, uh, Rick, sorry about so, that. So the final punchline of this, that, that is right. That was a typical Mercury retrograde, just too much happening at once. But if you were in an 18-wheeler going like a quarter of a mile an hour, just creeping along, and it then went into reverse, you almost wouldn't notice it. That's why the Mercury retrograde is so noticeable, because the apparent change of direction happens so fast compared to, let's say, when Pluto turns retrograde, it barely moves one degree of arc over a two-month period of time, whereas Mercury, the retrograde, is almost instantaneous. You know, I've noticed a real-world, non-laboratory example, which I've been trying to pin down, and that is LED lights. Everybody, 
you know, it was switched from incandescents to LEDs. And and some years ago, um, I took out the fluorescents in the kitchen and uh, put in LEDs. And one of them has now gone on the blink, except it hasn't. If I keep it on continuously, it will come back to life. And for a day or two, it will mm-hmm. shine normally. And then it will begin to flicker. And then it goes into this kind of dormant mode where you can barely see it. And... Uh, it's it it's it's there, but it's not there. And then much later, and I'm still hearing Barbara in the background, and I've got uh, I've got uh, three four muted, uh, Keith. Um, no, she has to mute herself from you. You can mute her from Skype if you have to. Yeah, but that would mute the Rick. No, I'm talking about in Skype. You can mute her on her screen. You can click on the three dots and select mute. If she doesn't mute, you can mute oh, her. Okay, well, that's more. Okay. Rick, I'm sorry. We're, I didn't really mean the show and tell to kind of come up in your segment, but uh, here we are. But, you know, Richard, the three largest Internet outages that have occurred since the Internet, since the World Wide Web went live, I'm talking about large-scale Cisco router down, down um, you know, regional outages. The three largest occurred on the day that Mercury uh, – these are over a period of 20 years – on the days that Mercury actually um, stationed, meaning that it was still in order to change direction. Because a planet changing direction um, is like a pendulum. It has to stop in order for it to change direction. And that's the most potent time of of a retrograde. So there is a real phenomenon there. Wow. Well, I know with this weird LED light, ever since I put it in and then it kind of flaked out, I've used it as a kind of a backdrop to monitor the rise and fall of the physics because the, it, it's so sensitive. In, you know, you, I'm not in a laboratory, obviously, with very expensive millions of dollars of equipment, but the, but the technology is so sensitive that slight changes in the physics change the electrical conductivity of the chips that make an LED light bulb work. And those subtle changes also affect computers. They affect anything which is digital. So basically, we're setting up a world where with subtle changes of the physics, with planets going retrograde, whole swaths of our civilization could die for a while because the people that run everything, they pretend not to know this physics is real and it actually is running everything in the background including consciousness. Yeah, well, and of course, uh, I'm not sure if uh, we've never spoken about this online, Richard, but I don't know if you're familiar with Robert John and the uh, Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center and the whole experimentations over a dozen years of the interface of consciousness with computer chips. You're talking Um, about the show. No question at all. That when we get rattled, our computers respond. You're talking about the so-called eggs, the Princeton eggs, all around the well, world. That's, yeah, yeah. That, that, I think that's part of a whole larger scenario. And they're supposed to be measuring randomness. And when the when when background becomes more coherent and non-random, they respond and they produce results and they are tabulated. And um, the the biggest success they had was 9/11 except it occurred four hours before the event. 
which introduces an asynchronicity in terms of time in three dimensions versus time in other dimensions. I mean, this is not simple. This makes relativity well, in fact, look like one of the things that, that they discovered at Princeton was that that um, human uh, thought could could actually impact a random number generator to generate odd or even numbers, but they could do it actually in displaced time. I mean, the, the results of this, um, you know, uh, boundaries of consciousness, um, mar- margins of reality is the name of Robert John's. You know, in-depth book after this whole thing, um, you know, kind of uh, was said and done. The, that, that the engineering research center now has closed, but um, but their work is tremendous. Okay, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My first guest on this New Year's night, day number one of 2023, trying to look ahead using the physics, what I call hyperdimensional astrology. As a kind of a long-distance search radar, is eminent astrologer, world-class Rick Levine. And we'll get back to what's going to happen, hopefully, in 2023. Mercury retrograde notwithstanding, here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. This is the first day or the first night of the new year, January 1, 2023. And we're talking with Rick Levine, who is a renowned world-class... Do you mind when I keep calling you a hyperdimensional astrologer? Because that's really what you guys are all doing, except nobody has taken the title, and I think you should be the first. Right. Well, the word that I typically use to describe my work is quantum astrology, but it is hyperdimensional. It is, I mean, even just extending into the realm of time immediately moves it out of this dimension. And there's obviously something that makes astrology work as precisely as it does that eludes three and even four dimensional reality. Okay. Having cleared that up. (laughs) Um, what the heck is going to happen in 2023 from very non-hyperdimensional perspectives? And we're going to get into those in the second hour with uh, Stephen and Barbara. Uh, I'm forecasting, and I've been pretty accurate on these on the political side, come to think of it, that 2023 could be gangbusters, could, be, could blow everybody's minds, blow their socks off. It could change the entire paradigm. Are we seeing any tremors in the force from an astrological perspective for the next year we we certainly are and i've been doing lectures recently and writing articles about 2023 because that's what 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 we astrologers do and in a way um it's like we're finally being released from the swamp the sludge the molasses of um of january february march of 2020 I mean, really, the the astrological events that occurred at the beginning of 2020 set the stage for what uh, for what occurred in 2020, 2021, and even into 2022. The eclipse, as we talked about a couple of months ago on online here, Richard, the eclipse on election day um, in the United States, the uh, lunar eclipse, was was a turning point. But with Mars retrograde, even on election day, and Mercury now retrograde until mid-January, Mars turns direct the end of January or January 18th, um, Mercury turns direct, then Uranus, the last of the outer planets, which has been retrograding, turns direct. We're going to feel, it's almost like 2023 is here in name and number, and we're excited and we're jazzed, but we're frustrated because it ain't going to move as fast as we want it to. It's not going to be until February, March, even late March and April, when some very powerful ripples occur. Pluto leaves the sign of Capricorn and dips its toe into Aquarius. Uh, Pluto is the slowest moving of the astrological planets. Um, It's been in Capricorn for nearly 20 years. And as it moves into Aquarius in March, it's going to create major ripples. And then Saturn, which is the planet of three-dimensional reality, of the limits of our sensory mechanisms, if you will, um, Saturn um, moves into Pisces. It changes signs also in March. And so what happens is that even though the year has started, we're going to feel the thunder. We're going to feel um, the, the, the excitement beginning to manifest come March, April, 
and it really is going to take us through the summer, but there's a lot of change on the playing field from an astrological point of view. It's not as significant as new events happening based upon, how do I say this, based upon interactions between the planets. It's more that we're moving into new territory. It's like we're being ejected from whatever it was that we've been in for the past three plus years. Hmm. So your completely separate approach from mine is converging the 2023 beginning like uh, early, early spring, February, March is going uh, yeah. to, is really going maybe to maybe even March, maybe even March, April. I think we'll feel some of it in February, but, but again, I think that we're going to still be a bit frustrated by it's not moving as fast as we thought it would. We're not moving. Uh, it feels like we're still maybe caught in a riptide that's pulling us backwards. But this is surface stuff, the deep currents right now moving forward. Wow. Now, can we say anything specific in terms of areas, subjects, people, uh, events? Mm, no. <laughs> Great oh, disappointment. Okay. Um, you know, it's reality unfolds in you know ac according to um, very specific archetypes, but it does it in a multivalent manner, meaning that there's so many different ways in which an archetype can express. I think one of the dangers is putting too much uh, limitation on what unfolds. I mean, I can tell you that the energy is moving fast now, but on a personal level, we're not getting as far uh, ahead as we think we might. We're, we keep feeling like we're close, we're close, we're there, and then we feel like we're, we're, we've moved backwards a bit. Well, is and that... I can tell you that energetically, by the end of March, we're going to be on a rocket ship. We're going to be going somewhere. Oh, my. Now, is that because there is a time lag between consciousness, which is not physical, it's hyperdimensional and physical 3D reality, biology, chemistry, uh, just the normal physics of, of inertia, things proceed much faster at the level of mind and consciousness than in the real world. You know, m maybe, but you, you stated a principle that is actually something that I've talked about a lot. Um, you, you know what the lag of seasons is. Yeah, sure. Astrologically, we have that same thing when an event occurs and it almost takes um, um, a few days, a week, a month, maybe even a few years sometimes on the more powerful, slower moving cycles for things to actually manifest from meta physical. Well, okay, well, George is going to come on. George is going to come on. Sorry, Richard. Go a, ahead. George is going to come on the third hour and I'm sure she'll have something to say about this. But for those people who don't know what Rick just said in terms of <laughs> physics, real world. I keep saying real world. I'm talking 3D. Three-dimensional world, yeah. yeah. Because the Earth is basically a lot of water on the surface, huge oceans, very deep. When the sun hits the Earth, like, you know, bringing a kettle to boil on a stove, it takes a time lag between the time the heat input and the response of soaking up enough heat in the oceans to change the weather. And it's about a month. So... You know, your peak heating in the Northern Hemisphere is August. The actual summer heat really doesn't start hitting till late August, September. And winter the same way. The, the coldest months are not December. 
the shortest year, the solstice, when we get the least sunlight, it's about right. January, February because of this heat storage of the oceans. So you're saying between the 3D reality of physics and matter and the hyperdimensional reality of consciousness and thought and inclination, there is this lag very similar to the ocean lag on Earth. I am saying that, however, that's more observable when it comes to um, collective, uh, historical, cultural, geopolitical, economic uh, um, um, effects. When it comes to personal effects, we often feel it much faster. So that if it's just something that you are experiencing, likely you're getting it almost right away. Whereas if we're talking about a revolution in a country, that may be two or three months or even a year after the astrological event uh, event hits. Does, but I do think it's important to understand, Richard, that, that the reason why things won't really begin to un, uh, unfold at a, at a rapid rate um, until March is because Mars, during it, any planet during its retrograde period, goes um, forward and then backward over a certain area and then forward over that area again. And until it's not just the fact that the planets are turning direct, Mercury and Mars in January, it's going to take them until late February and the middle of March to get into new territory. Now, we astrologers call that the planetary shadow, the, the retrograde shadow. And so between, the, between Mercury and Mars moving out of their shadows in late February and in March, and then the additional factor of Saturn, a slow 30-year cycle, and Pluto, the slowest 250-year roughly cycle, that those two planets are changing signs. That those two planets are changing signs um, in March, and that will thrust us uh, forward. So they're literally physically against the backdrop of the stars. They're changing signs, configurations, constellations, and these are like a sine wave. When you go from one sign to another, the, exactly. sign, the sign goes positive, negative, positive, negative, um, in alternating fashion. Um, now, in terms of this lag, is part of it due to the fact that there is, I would almost call it um, social inertia in terms yes. of consciousness, that yes. those of us that are really tuned in, we're responding much quicker than the middle of the curve, which is watching networks, watching mainstream media, watching social media, talking to each other. Their realities are very different, and it takes time for changes to manifest when you have this huge social consciousness, which is basically inertially moving much slower. You explained it very, very well, and when I teach this, it takes me an hour and a half to get to where you just got to in like, <laughs> in like one minute. But you know, that's exactly correct. You, you got it. So it's part of this. We're, we're manifesting realities, but more likely we're, we're literally not open as much as we should be to respond as quickly to new realities which are coming in from, cliched word, the ether. Well, that's true, and you know, many of us are familiar with the work of Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the you know the structure of scientific revolution. Yep. And and basically, is science 
which theoretically should adopt new ideas when they're experimentally proven, basically adopt new ideas while the old wave dies out. <laughs> I am living proof of this because I have been talking for literally at least a decade, probably longer, about this dome-wide lunar phenomenon all yes, over the yes. moon, this incredible layered glass key, super-engineered structure. And I have people in our own ranks other researchers saying, well, you know, it's hard to, 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 to believe. And it has, to me, it's not about belief. It's about looking at the data. But there's this incredible inertia because we've never encountered extraterrestrial super civilization technology before. And as I keep saying now in the last few weeks, what do we expect? We go and find Kmart? No. You know, Arthur C. Clarke, any you know, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Or I can think of some other cliches, you know, Sherlock Holmes. When you've eliminated the possible, the only thing that remains is the impossible. But there's huge inertia to get people to kind of switch gears and begin to consider the unbelievable as part of their normal reality. It's true. You know, the, the thing about sufficiently advanced technologies being perceived as magic uh, by, by Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh, that, that's, that's Clarke's third law. Yep. And, and, and as you may know, he said, I'm stopping at three because it was good enough for the two Isaacs. <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone, I'm sure, would, would, would get that or would understand that. He's referring to the three laws of motion by Isaac Newton and the three laws of robotics by Isaac Asimov. Yes. Well, I knew one of them. Unfortunately, I arrived too late to know the other one. So, okay. So we're, we're dealing with this amorphous freight train coming at us. We know in the March, April timeframe, it's going to hit us. How is it going to affect different people? In other words, can where you put your consciousness reduce the shock? Is it going to be that much of a paradigm shift? Yeah, I, I, I think so, and I don't know it's going to happen. I don't know that it's going to happen all in March and April, but I think what's happening is that that um, there's, you know, there's a, been a bifurcation, obviously, and it's not unlike the, uh, the bifurcation in the time machine where there's the Eloy and the war, warlocks, the, the um, um, the people who lived underground and, and managed the machinery and the simple people who lived uh, upstairs on the surface of Earth in the Garden of Eden. And in some ways, we have gone through or are going through that kind of bifurcation. And there's a whole portion of humanity that's basically saying, hell no, I won't go because it's a, they're fearful of this change that's so deep that's not just about E.T., it's about A.I., you know, it's about it's about posthumanism. It's about it's about evolution hitting the the fan. You know, and basically, you know, it's like a cancer metastasizing. It's like evolution has reached a breaking point where the complexity is going to do something that no one can quite put their finger on, um, at least in a rational basis. And because people are so afraid, yes, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. You know, there are people who are already 
um, you know, living in the future, so to speak. There are people who have embraced or accepted these changes that are unfolding, even though we don't even quite get the full, you know, uh, gist of, of, of how big these changes are. But I think that the way in which we can best prepare ourselves and and um, and and, what's the, and strengthen uh, ourselves um, is to basically be adaptable. Is basically to be you know whether that is the you know announcement you know of full disclosure or whether it's uh, some other new breakthrough that occurs. They're going to occur rapidly throughout the year, and I think we just need to kind of set our expectations aside and be open to it as it unfolds. If I understand correctly, the Princeton experiment with the eggs was looking at random number generators, meaning little digital devices that just spit out total randomness, and they actually use some noise sources to, to, to input those numbers. And then when major world-changing, consciousness-changing events occurred, that random number generator would go less random and the computer's monitoring would signal that as a as a tremor in the force to use a, another cliche what i'm wondering because time now turns out to be incredibly malleable and, and mutable whether that configuration of astrology of the physics of the planets of their relationship geometrically which is what is modulating the background ether and consciousness, does that have premonitional shock waves echoing back through time before the actual configurations arrive? Uh, I, w I would answer undoubtedly, um, although, uh, I mean, look, look, there is a whole um, branch of modern theoretical physics um, that has now entered into an experimental phase called retrocausation. And retrocausation is how does the future impact the present? How does the present impact the past? Wow. Do we remember who's doing this? Because I've seen uh, it somewhere, but I don't remember the specifics. Well, one of the people who kind of led this whole thing in physics um, is this guy named Jack Sarfati. Do you know oh, Jack yeah, Sarfati? I know Jack. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So Jack Sarfati basically had this kind of in the spirit of the um, Einstein, you know, the, the Copenhagen uh, um, thought experiments. He had this thing that, um, that, was, that went like this. Imagine you're a 14-year-old boy sitting at home, your telephone rings, you pick it up, and it's you from 50 years in the future calling you to tell you what you need to do in order to get to where this consciousness is. Does that break any laws of physics? And well, he concluded, and Jack is, is a brilliant mathematician. I mean, uh, I, I, I know my math, and he loses me by the third or fourth line of anything <laughs> he does. Um, but um, basically, he claimed that um, it does not break any laws of physics. And he was almost kind of laughed out of the American physics community. He ended up going to... Uh, um, to England, and uh, he taught physics under David Boehm at, uh, um, Bur I can't think of the name of the college, it'll come to me in a moment. Um, but, um, but he kind of now is back in the United States, and there's an entire, there's a, you know, annual retro-causality 
um, you know, um, conference of leading edge physicists. And basically it has something to do, you know, with the same concept that Stephen Hawking came up with to describe why black holes don't absorb everything, why magnetic radiation escapes from a black hole. It, it has to do with some form of quantum randomness. And again, the mathematics uh, evade me. But in answer to your question, I have no doubt at all that the future is constantly informing and creating the present. And in fact, as an astrologer, people say, can you change the future? And my kind of tongue-in-cheek answer is no, but you can change the past, which changes <laughs> the present, which alters the trajectory. And people go, wait, you can't change the past. And I say, you know, have you ever been in therapy? You know, that's what therapy does. You know, uh, what, what about Columbus discovering America or the first Thanksgiving that you thought, or Santa Claus, that you knew was true at one age and now you have a different, you know, perspective? The past is just as flexible as the future. How do you avoid the classic grandfather paradox, which is, you know, you have a time machine, you go back, you, you somehow wind up killing your grandfather, so your father's not born on your, on your father's side, then you're not born, but how could you then exist to go back and kill the guy who created you? In other words, how do you avoid the paradox? Yeah, yeah, you've just stepped into my favorite realm of science fiction. <laughs> oh, I love time travel stories. See, the yeah. only way I, think, I can I think, think of I think it. The first really excellent one was by a tenured physics professor um, 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 in uh, UC Irvine, um, and he wrote a book called Timescape. It was probably like 1975 or 76. Was that Benford? Was, huh? was that Greg Benford? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a, a brilliant, hardcore yes, definitely. hard science fiction writer. So, again, how in this model do we avoid the paradox unless – unless Go ahead. I don't know. Well, suppose reality is not just one reality. It branches, which is another model in mainstream quantum physics, and every reality is separate so you can in different timelines go back and kill your grandfather or you know do something that winds up with his death. But it doesn't affect your timeline. It affects the one you do it in. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how that works, but that's a good, easy way out. <laughs> well, but it's also buttressed by a lot of other data that we're not living in just one universe. There are yeah. multiple parallel universes, mm -hmm. and, they're, and they diverge from what we think of as reality, almost like moving across a phonograph record. And the farther you get from the center of the whole, the more different the music is in a crude analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richard? Uh, Rick? Yeah. That's Ron, Ron Gerbron, I believe. Yeah. I was, well, as usual, Richard, you're hitting the same questions that I would have asked if uh, I, I'd been there. But it is the, the crux of the grandfather paradox was it came from a time when they didn't really take the idea of uh, parallel timelines very seriously. And so that it was, you know, it was assumed that you would go back to the same timeline you came from. But uh, nowadays, all the cool kids are thinking uh, the, um, well, you could call it the Avengers solution because that was the way they resolved their time paradoxes in there. And it's true. 
your timeline continues from wherever you are. That's yeah. the forward direction. It's not necessarily the forward or backward direction of the main timeline that you came from. You have created another one there. The old idea was that everything that happened in a slightly different way through the forces of randomness uh, or whatever would be another timeline. And the new one is that you have to initiate it. It's your fault, you know, that there's a new uh, timeline. The potential it, for it is you, there in the ether. Even when you, you say gotta, it's your you, fault, you mean you have to intentionally decide you're going to jump timelines somehow? Yeah, yeah. You I have to take probably, the responsibility. I, Who's, who is talking? I know we're on a radio show. Oh, that's, show. That, that, that's Ron oh, Gerbron. Rick, it's Ron. I just wanted to toss in a question. I didn't want to take it over. Go back to, what, go back to whatever you were saying. <laughs> Rick, go ahead. Who's no, who's Ron? Oh, Ron Gerbron. He's one of our enterprise mission researchers who's been on Red more than you have. Ah, okay, good. Uh, I wasn't, doubting his, uh, yeah. I wasn't yeah. doubting his credibility I mean, here on the radio. Several, I was just wondering who I was yeah. with. Several years okay. ago, apropos what Ron was going to say, and he'll be back, you know, shortly, um, Robin and I experienced something which has to be crossing timelines because we were in, at this conference in Arizona – and she, we had Morala with us, uh, who was our dog. And, you know, when you have a dog with you, you have to pay attention to dog and not much else, particularly with Morala, who was very independent-minded. Anyway, we went back to the room, and she found that she left her pocketbook uh, in the dining room. So I went back to the dining room, and the staff looked, and I looked, and we couldn't find the pocketbook anywhere. And they were the cleaning crew was coming out and all that. And I went back and I said, well, obviously somebody stole it. So this made for a very bad night. All right. You can imagine. Next morning, we go to the dining room, sit down at the same table because, you know, you kind of mark out your favorite spaces. Territory. Yeah. yeah. And there under the table was her pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I can explain that in any three world scenario, three D scenario, because the cleaning crew, if they'd found it, they would have turned it in. Uh, everything was in it. Nothing had been taken. It was there, yeah. sitting, waiting to be discovered by us the next morning. And that happens a lot, you know, when you misplace. It does. It happens more than we realize. When you misplace something, I mean, it's becoming a running joke. We've misplaced something. We both say to each other, well, just wait. It will turn up. And lo and behold, it turned up. And it's like we were moving like the head on a, on a computer disc or a needle on an old-fashioned vinyl record from one track to another track to another track where in some of those tracks, the thing was not there. In other tracks or our original, our home track, we were back where it was normal. And I have no idea whether that's real or Memorex or whatever. Okay, we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Rick Levine. I believe we're going to have to goodnight him. We'll do that with a little ceremony at the top of the hour. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, January 1, 2023. Steve Bassett has joined us. Uh, Rick, I understand that uh, you have some other commitments, so you need to take your leave. I want to thank you so much for this preview. I wish it could have been a little more specific, but I'm sure a lot of your uh, customers and clients say that. Well, how about when I'm back on in April and we're talking about, oh, my God, look how it's unfolded. Oh, my all means, we will make a date for random multiple timeline confusion. (laughs) I like it. Okay. All right. Good night. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Always good to chat with you, Richard. Thank you, Rick. Happy New Year. Mr. Bassett, are you with us? Trying to connect. Okay. I hear Stephen. Okay. So, um, obviously, I have a little thing uh, to fill here. Keith, why don't you tell me in the window when Stephen is available? Um, let me go back to my radio with pictures, uh, which is useful that I have loaded. If you go back to Richard. Um, okay, so Stephen is here. Let me find out. Stephen, are you with us? Steven? Have to get set up on Bluetooth. Okay, Stephen is not here. Uh, not here yet. Okay. So let me let me continue what I was going to say. If you go back to Radio with Pictures, remember under the banner on the guest page at the top, you see a bunch of names: mine, Levine, Stevens, Andrew, etc. Click on my name. That takes you to my section. Um, two items: uh, five and six. Five is a tabulation, courtesy of NBC, of all the missions which are heading toward the moon tonight. Um, They've been launched. Uh, The obvious uh, uh, way to do this is to launch as a uh, slow boat to China. So you save the energy. You save the gas. It takes them months to get there, even though the moon is only a quarter million miles away. But it takes months and months and months. Uh, there are several missions. There is the Haukutu R mission from Japan. This is a commercial lunar lander capable of deploying multiple payloads on the surface. 
In this test mission, the lander will attempt to deploy a rover called Rashid from the United Arab Emirates as part of the this Arab nation's first lunar mission. Now remember, the UAE already sent a, a Mars mission to orbit Mars and returning amazing data on the climate and weather. Uh, it, it was launched, the uh, uh, Haukutu R mission from Japan on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket uh, a couple months ago, and it is scheduled to reach the surface of the moon in April. Now, let's go back to what Rick just said. He said that the you know what's going to hit the rotating kitchen appliance in March, April. Well, if some of these non-governmental missions make it down through the layers of glass to reach the surface of the moon, you can imagine that their data, their imaging, their science, as they report it, if they report it honestly, is going to basically pust uh, the paradigm wide open because they're going to show us with multiple different sources and cameras what's actually circling the moon, covering the moon in various layers of incredible uh, disrepair because of eons of meteor, uh, micrometeorite bombardment. Okay, um, there's another mission which kind of uh, hooked uh, a free ride on the lunar uh, on the Hayukutu mission. It's called Lunar Flashlight. The spacecraft will not go down to the surface. It will go into orbit in a polar orbit using layers, lasers rather, to search for water in the craters at the moon's south pole. The model is these craters are permanently in shadow and have not seen sunlight in billions of years. Well, you know what I think they're really doing. I think these are secret missions designed with a variety of technologies to probe the extent of the surviving lunar glass, which is densest over the poles. We'll talk about that with some show and tell a bit later. And so you have to, unlike the Indians who tried to land a spacecraft in 2019, which crashed landed because they didn't take uh, uh, you know, warnings about the glass seriously, and they basically, you can see it in the data, they literally hit the layers on the way down and they bounced and then they crashed. So hopefully the uh, lunar flashlight uh, spacecraft and the Hakutu R lander will not make the same mistakes and the flashlight orbiter will help the uh, uh, lander land down through a hole. There are holes. And particularly I want to very much emphasize that the glass density and the number of holes on the near side, the side we can see, there's almost no glass left on the side facing the Earth. The heavy glass is at the poles and on the far side, and that's where the Chinese technology of going vertically straight down, as opposed to the Indians of moving laterally through many, many tens of degrees, uh, coming in almost horizontally, they obviously hit a chunk whereas the uh, Chinese were able to luckily get down through a hole. There is another mission from India called Chandrayaan-3 that will involve their GSLV, Mark III heavy lift launch vehicle, propelling a landing module and robotic rover toward the moon, launching in June of this year. The uh, rover will carry a seismometer, a heat flow experiment, and spectrometers, 
and will also be aimed at the lunar south pole, hopefully from their um, uh, previous experience, which was catastrophic, they will have learned their lesson and they in fact are not going to repeat the mistake. They will take account of the glass. They will look at the data coming back from the uh, uh, Denuri mission or the Artemis mission that just returned home and they will take appropriate precautions to try to land through a hole in the glass. Okay, I believe now that we have uh, Stephen connected. Let me turn up a pot and see. Stephen, are you with us? Mr. Bassett. I don't hear anything. I would unmute. That'd be useful. I'm hearing switching. I don't hear you. Can you give us a count? See, Mercury retrograde. Rick, darn it. <laughs> Good grief. Richard? I can hear you. I can hear. Well, I hear somebody. Is that wrong? Okay. Yeah, that's just me. I'm just saying I could hear some of the background chatter while I was waiting here, and uh, he's having trouble, I think, with his Bluetooth connection. Yeah, Uh-oh. he can't hear us. Oh, uh, boy. We could hear him. I had to mute him, but he can't that's- hear us for some reason. Okay. Yeah. All right. Until we can figure out the wiring and that Mercury retrograde is really manifesting tonight. Uh, why don't we try going with Barbara Honiger? Well, what a good idea. <laughs> well, I want both of you to address the uh, issues of politics and the next year. And there are some developments that you uh, need to report. Let me give you a little uh, kind of a brief intro here. For all these people, I'm going to be giving a very, very abbreviated uh, background because they have, you know, credits and honors and accomplishments that are would take an entire three hours to do it all. But Barbara is a um, formerly a high-level government position. She held this position in the White House under the Reagan administration. She was special assistant to the president for domestic policy. She is current director of the Attorney General's Law Review. I'm sorry, she was then uh, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice. And for more than a decade, she was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is the premier science, technology, and national security affairs research university of the Department of Defense. And switching ahead to the current position, I believe you are the current chairman of the Lawyers for 9-11 Truth. Is that correct? I'm chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Ah. And very exciting if everybody goes to my items for tonight's show. I was able to add at the last minute item number four under my items. And um, you will be able to watch our litigation director, Attorney Mick Harrison, uh, reached over 10 million people today, this morning, on January 1st, kicking off the Lawyers Committee's New Year with a bang um, on the George Galloway program in the UK that reaches, he claims, over 11 million people worldwide. Um, so that's very, very exciting. And the um, the subject um, is a very historic uh, case, the most important case, arguably, of the Lawyers Committee on behalf of 9-11 victims' family members, the Lawyers Committee Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, Richard Gage, 
um, uh, first responders, um, family members of first responders at Ground Zero who died as a result of the toxic dust, etc. Um, our case on the World Trade Center grand jury petition is right now before the Supreme Court, and in five days, on January 6th, they're holding a conference to decide whether to accept our case. It's called a CERT conference. And um, so Mick Harrison went into the history of that historic case and why it's of critical foundational relevance to every single American in this country. So, um, yes. And the other thing in my bio you didn't mention uh, is that I did earn the first ever accredited, fully accredited uh, graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology in the world. And that was at John F. Kennedy University in June of 1981. So I had to leave my desk at the White House and fly back to California to get my degree on the stage with Manley Hall. And the reason that I mention that is I'd like to comment on some things that your first guest said. I think that's Rick Levine, right? Well, absolutely. And you have a, a foot in both universes or timelines yeah. or whatever, so by all means. Well, I think I think uh, both reincarnations within the single lifetime is the way I think about it. Um, but, I, but I would like to say that um, when I was in the – JFK University, John F. Kennedy University graduate program in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology, which was from 1978 to 1981 when I got my degree. Um, it was a night school for uh, working adults. And I was living in San Francisco and went over to JFK University in Orinda, California at night to get my degree over quite a period of time. And at that time, I knew everybody in the field, including Robert John, uh, of course, Hal Putoff and um, Russell Target, SRI, and Uri Geller, and all of the incredible psychics that they study there. And I just like to let people know that one of the major reasons, and this is surprising, um, you would expect the government, which the CIA and the NSA and the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, they all funded the work on remote viewing at, which we used to call clairvoyance, at Stanford Research International, SRI, which was put off in target group, their research project. It was funded by the government, and it was uh, secretly funded by the government at that time. But most people don't know that one of the major reasons the government was interested was not necessarily to develop people's psychic ability, but to try to figure out how to block it. Oh. To try to, for instance, uh, if you were a Soviet spy who had psychic abilities, they wanted to know how to block uh, that, that psychic from finding out what we knew. But most importantly, Uri Geller told me this in person over dinner one night in New York City. And I learned that um, when he had said publicly and in his book, uh, in his books that he wrote and in Maharaj's book called Uri, um, you learn that he was dedicated to trying to prevent Armageddon, to trying to prevent nuclear war. 
one of the ways that he had in mind to try to do that would be to prove to the government that there was that uh, the two men in missile silos that are missile silos in Montana um, could if they had psychic abilities, psychokinetic abilities, they could actually bend one of the one or both of the dual keys and prevent a missile from being uh, shot. Oh off. my gosh! So what an idea! There was both there was both an offensive and a defensive reason for um, studying psychic abilities with people like Uri Geller, and the major one, counterintuitively maybe but not if you really carefully think about it, was the defensive one, to try to prevent the Soviets and anybody else from being able to use psychic abilities to spy on us or bend our dual key hmm. in our missile silos. Well, this is so something... Anyway, I just wanted to no, no, this is, very, this is very important because it tallies in with something I've been thinking about and looking at seriously for several years. When I discovered the work of Nikolai Kozarev, who was a preeminent Russian physicist who did stunning pioneering work in torsion field physics, hyperdimensional physics, uh, which of course I think is the background for everything we're talking about tonight. Uh, one of the things he discovered was there was a category of materials which could be used to screen torsion field activity, which includes things like psionics and telepathy and precognition and all those parapsychological uh, terms which are part of the uh, ether interface between our timeline, our dimension, and higher dimensional state spaces, okay? And once you discover, once he discovered and then you know, made public the idea that there are certain materials which can be used as a screen, that takes, right. us, that takes us into the very cliched 1950s idea of people wearing tinfoil hats. I was just going to say that. To ba because aluminum and aluminum oxide, because of but the... But it actually works. It actually works, yes. So yeah. it, it has to do with what's called the isomer spins in the nucleus of the aluminum atom and its various isotopes. Okay, now we fast forward the film. And in the 1980s and 90s, there was this sudden awareness on the part of bright people that someone was chemtrail spraying the skies over North America, Europe, the Far East, South, all over by using fleets of tankers to dump stuff out the back to create contrails, not water condensation contrails, but chemical contrails designed to do something in the upper atmosphere around 40,000 feet of the Earth. And there turned out to have been a memo out of the NASA Lewis Research Center, which we tracked down when I was doing a lot of work on the Art Bell Show, that said that it was part of a geoengineering effort to basically cause a smoke screen in the upper atmosphere to reflect solar heat so that the global warming from too much CO2 would not overwhelm humankind. But there's something about that model that just not ring right to me so I kept looking and looking and looking, and then I found what the primary compound is of the so-called chemtrail spraying. It's and aluminum. It, it's aluminum, aluminum oxide. So right. what if the program is designed to basically screen the planet, all the consciousness on Earth, from the torsion field interactions with ETs, 
with higher level consciousness with anything in other dimensions by basically creating an aluminum spray screen. Well, that's one possibility. I believe uh, Steve Barrett is available now. Mr. Bassett, are you there? Or that Bassett? Mr. Bassett. No? Not yet. Oh, okay. Mercury, I I... Mercury retrograde is really... By the way, um, the Lawyers Committee interview with uh, the mother of all talk shows, George Galloway, uh, yeah. it's item number one. The Lawyers Committee... Well, oh, that's right. It's not number four. I made it number one at the last yeah. minute. The Lawyers yeah, Committee Litigation we... Director, See? Mick Harrison. Our litigation... We've lost you on Skype. Oh, it's this only is... 23 minutes. Okay. Keep talking. You lost me? Now you're back. Oh, oh, I didn't know I was lost to begin with. You've been you've been fading in and out. Yes. And we're having and we're having earlier as well. Here in New Mexico we have another problem. We're having a tremendous ice storm which has turned to sleet. I can hear it slashing at the windows, which means my antennas for the Skype link may go out at any minute. I mean, someone's determined that we're not gonna do our New Year's show tonight, apparently. Well, we've, we've uh, beat the odds so far. So far. Um, yeah, we beat the odds so far. So um, you wanted to talk politics in the news. Well, I, we're springboarding from the whole 9-11 issue, I find the date when they're going to have this hearing, January 6th. Which January of course, 6th of all dates. Which is an incredible, you know, remember Roosevelt live in infamy? Well, that date to do this hearing which has to do with inside job manipulation of the whole 9-11 scenario, it's somehow eerily, incredibly eerily appropriate, I think. Yes, it is. Um, I I should say that um, I hope everybody uh, actually watches those 23 minutes. It's it's the best uh, interview that uh, Mick Harrison, our Lawyers Committee litigation director, has ever done, um, and that's that's in part because George Galloway, who who claims to reach 11 million people worldwide, I believe him, and probably a lot more than that, you know, when people forward links and such. Um, George Galloway just let Mick. He, he was he asked very cogent questions, makes made very cogent comments, but basically let Mick uh, lay out the whole uh, the whole issue. Uh, before the Supreme Court right now, and in a nutshell, and and you know this could this could actually break uh, around the time of March April, um, because the um, the conference that the Supreme Court is holding on January sixth, which is five days from now only, um, is not just about our case; it's about the other cases that have been presented uh, to the Supreme Court, asking them to take them up. Now, last year, they only took up less than 1%, about 75 or so cases out of over 8,000 that were requested to be taken. So we have to be uh, realistic about our chances. But um, if the case were taken up, it would have massive implications. And I'm just hoping that uh, Rick Levine, that your uh, prediction that something major is going to going to break in the spring uh, would be that they decide to take up our case. I would think that would qualify as a major paradigm shift because if it legitimized the idea that inquiry 
has to look outside the box for outside the box solutions to outside the box problems, it would represent a major um, you know, footstep along the right path and it would set a precedent for a whole bunch of other inquiries having nothing to do with 9-11. Well, yes, and specifically so, because as fate would have it, um, our case actually is of central foundational importance to any American citizen going forward who wants to bring or tries to bring evidence of serious crimes through a U.S. attorney to any criminal grand jury in the country. And because the district court and the appeals court uh, unconscionably ruled that even 9-11 victims' family members, which are some of our plaintiffs in the case, do not have standing to ask the to demand that the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, which is the jurisdiction for the World Trade Center attacks on 9-11, that the U.S. attorney does not have to forward anything by any citizen of evidence of, of crimes to any grand jury, not just ours. So this is a foundational case for the power of citizens to get evidence of crimes into the actual hands of the grand jury and to cut out the middleman, the U.S. attorneys, who for decades now have been uh, gatekeepers. So this would become pro forma in law? It would be automatic in terms of referral? (laughs) The fascinating thing about our case, Richard, is that there's already a federal statute, a federal law, that makes it mandatory not discretionary, but mandatory for evidence of crimes given by any citizen to any U.S. attorney in the country that that U.S. attorney must, must underline, forward them to a criminal grand jury. Wasn't this the basis of the suit you brought through the Southern District some years ago? That is this suit, Richard. It's ah. now before the Supreme Court. Wow. Now, all right, I want you to put on your paranormal hat. Uh-oh. Take, take off your political hat, put on the paranormal hat. No, they, they can be the same, actually. What do you think? Well, one checks the other. What do you think this court's going to do with this? Well, I mean, if we, if we look at the statistics, they probably simply will – we will just be one of the 99% of cases they just don't, don't take and they don't give you a reason. They will tell us if they're going to uh, take it up or not. Uh, they won't necessarily do that on January 6th or even shortly thereafter. Um, one of the main reasons that Mick Harrison, our litigation director, mentioned on the George Galloway program this morning, which is important, is that the um, uh, the plaintiffs, or excuse me, the defendants in the case, in this case, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney in Southern District of New York, um, they have a the option of they had the option already when we filed our petition for cert asking for the case to be taken up they had the option of replying to our quite long and detailed evidentiary based filing petition and they chose not to say a word um so if the court does decide to before the court even decides to take up our case they could on January 6th, they could decide to go back to the U.S. Attorney's Office and say, look, you've got to reply to this, and then we'll decide. 
Wow. So we're yeah. really on a kind of a countdown. And you we say you, you you say this will be introduced formally <clears throat> on the sixth of the hearing, but we won't know for maybe weeks or even months, right? We we don't know exactly when we will know. Well, the time lag between January sixth and end of April, or March end of uh, end of March uh, April, that's about the right, wouldn't you say, time frame? It could be. I mean, it's just a guess that that might be it. What's fascinating is when folks watch, uh, your members of your audience watch the interview in my number one in my items uh, today with George Galloway in the UK. Um, at the very end of that interview, he leans towards the camera and he says, this could be the most important thing that happens on Earth. Wow. My guest filling in for Steve Bassett, we're still trying to connect with Stephen, and we're having problems uh, logistically at all three ends of this uh, multi-continental wire. It's actually not a wire, but uh, that's a metaphor. Uh, is Barbara Honiger, who was a senior policy uh, individual in the Reagan White House, is current chairman of the board of the uh, uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, and is reported on some extraordinary news which will come to fruition one way or the other in 2023. And I would think that that's because of the doors it will open, uh, Galloway's comment uh, seems appropriate. This could be the, or certainly up there, one of the most important decisions in uh, modern civilization's lifetime because it opens the door to people regaining the power of real democracy and accountability. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, I'm going to uh, turn the attention to the UFO UAP phenomenon. And if we can't connect with Stephen, uh, Barbara has some important words to say about that. And then I have something from an editorial that uh, Stephen sent around earlier that I'm going to read from, so he will be with us in spirit and in word, if not in actuality. But let's cross our fingers and pray that Mercury retrograde does not interfere too much longer. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Yes, this is music from uh, Anino Maraconi, the original score, Mission to Mars, which is uh, sometimes very appropriate. It kind of sounds like a countdown. Well, we're doing a countdown. Is Stephen going to, you know, outwit all the gremlins and all the Mercury retrograde problems of the physics tonight and be able to join us? Or will I have to uh, kind of communicate some of what he was going to talk about uh, in absentia? But fortunately, we've got Barbara with us. And Barbara's area of expertise and interest overlaps this part of our uh, conversation tonight. Barbara, I want you to talk about what could happen in 2023 now that the President of the United States has formally signed into law the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which contains crucial language encoding into law what basically is a kind of an open door to interior government activities and contractor activities in the entire area of ETs, UFOs, UAPs, and what NASA has really discovered in the solar system. Right. Um, I'm going to answer that question, but I just want to close the loop Okay. Uh, on what we were discussing just before the break. I started talking and he said he can't hear you. Um, I just want everybody to know that uh, it's likely that the Supreme Court will not take up our case. Of course, we want them to. But if they don't, uh, we're not going to give up. There are many other venues that we will then follow up, uh, including uh, New York City, New York State, courts, um, D.C., uh, U.S. Attorney in D.C., many other venues. We're not going to give up. But we, of course, hope. We're already before the Supreme Court in our big case, and we hope that they will take it up and that, of course, it will then be argued and that we would win. So I just wanted to close the circle on that. Sometime before I leave, I'm going to answer your question here in a second, but we do need to talk about the uh, reaching for the stars. Um, yeah, why don't we do that next? Because next weekend we're going to do a whole show devoted to this, and so we should probably give an appropriate background. Barbara has been very busy. Are we going to identify the donor of this extraordinary gift? Sure, that's fine. Okay. Uh, Barbara has reached into her own pocket, and she has purchased an Allen Bean lithograph. And you can say, well, you know, lithographs are a dime a dozen. Turns out this was part of a limited edition 1500 printed according to the uh, publisher. Uh, but what makes this incredibly unique is that 24 astronauts, both from the Apollo program, the shuttle program, Mercury, Gemini, 24 astronauts in total physically signed this lithograph of one of Alan Bean's most interesting and important and inspirational paintings. And what Barbara is doing is offering, uh, offering this amazing item to the other side of midnight, to the Enterprise mission, so we can use it as a fundraiser to basically bankroll 
the crucial political things we're going to have to do in 2023 to make sure that disclosure really happens. So you want to take it from there? Right, that's correct. So um, we don't need to go in this anymore except to have people go to my items. And I believe it's one of the items. It's obvious. I don't know which number it is. I don't have it up. I, I only have four items. So It's, it's item two, number two. Okay. Item number two, you will be able to see that uh, amazing uh, print of, uh, by Ellen Bean called Reaching for the Stars. And I understand that that is that a huge mural of that very painting was chosen by Ellen Bean to be the mural at uh, NASA headquarters. And I'm guessing, though I don't know, I'm trying to find out, that there was an event that Ellen Dean attended where the astronauts were all invited. And that would be why this print is signed by all of them, that they came to that dedication of the mural. That is my guess. But anyway, we're uh, next Saturday uh, on your show, we're going to have a segment where uh, we discuss the uh, how to structure the fundraising campaign to raise the most funds for the enterprise mission. Uh, and um, the winner, if you will, uh, we'll talk about what that would entail to be the winner, but the winner who makes the largest donation over a period of time uh, towards a preset goal uh, that we will discuss what that goal should be, the total dollar amount. Uh, my idea is, is that the largest donor, once that number is reached, uh, would receive the the signed print. So it's not only by LNB, but also by 23 or 24 months. And number two, you can see the name. Whoops. Barbara, and you can there see you are. You're back. The, uh, the uh, margin. Yeah, you're 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 fading in and out because communication is terrible, terrible tonight, and the weather here is not helping. What people could or couldn't hear, but detail that is structure the fundraising drive so that everybody can can give us their ideas for to raise maximum amount of funds, making this amazing uh, print by Alan Bean available, signed by. 23 or 24 astronauts. See, the thing that's so interesting is of all the astronauts that you could have picked, Bean obviously is the guy who has blown the whistle on what the real moon is like. And his body of work as a whole, to say nothing of a, of a, a piece of his, his artwork, which actually has been signed by all the other members, 24 of them, not all, but most of them at that time, uh, members of the astronaut corps, it is going to become incredibly valuable because every bean work, given his role in history, his role in revealing what's really there, and all the stunning implications of having ET structures available to current human primitive rocket technology just three days away, all of that is going to come out of the closet and is going to wind up, you know, like one of these long lost Rembrandts or Monet's or, or uh, you know, any other, uh, any major artist who has been dead X number of years and whose work is appreciated. This is a unique time in human history where if you invest in this particular work, we can see in the real world politics from the, from the, the you know, South Korean imaging alone 
at some point, this is going to become known globally, and then Bean's art as visionary, as prophecy, as testimony to an incredible future is going to simply, in real-world terms, appreciate astronomically, and whoever is in a position to make the right bid for this, uh, you know, uh, beating the reserve amount, etc., they are going to be holding a piece of history that will only appreciate with time. And there are few other times when you can say that with some certitude based on other events going on around the world. So that's kind of backdrop. We'll do a much fuller uh, discussion and layout of what we're planning to do uh, next Saturday. We're going to return to the moon. And who knows by that time uh, what's going to have happened with the uh, South Korean mission and what other astonishing leaks uh, they are going to uh, uh, have, have given us. So let us segue to the extraterrestrial uh, idea and let's talk about this NDAA because, Barbara? Correct. <laughs> the spacecraft uh, from, from Artemis 1, the unmanned Orion spacecraft, splashed down about two weeks ago, uh, 300 miles south of San Diego was collected by the U.S. Navy, brought to shore, was offloaded from uh, the ship onto the dock and then onto a truck, and has been making its way. Uh, I talk about slow boats to China all the time, making its way by convoy on a truck, on a flatbed with tarps over it and guards for the last two weeks from California to the Cape. I find it fascinating that on January 1, this afternoon, the spacecraft, which contains all kinds of original data, including incredible 4K color, stunning high-resolution video of the moon as seen from Orion, that all physically arrived at the Cape literally on the first day of the new year. And do you think that's just a coincidence? It's very auspicious, positively <laughs> speaking. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about this NDAA and what it could release. Well, um, of course, I don't personally know. I don't have a crystal ball. But um, I think the important thing about the NDAA, in conjunction with an executive order or some kind of an order that has been published in the uh, talked about in the New York Times a number of times that I've mentioned it on previous recent shows, um, the NDAA, portions of it now, um, uh, make it uh, open the door completely um, to impunity by any person in the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, uh, defense or intelligence contractors, that whole kind of national security infrastructure of the deep state, for any person who has any information that would be about or related to UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, they now have absolute immunity to come forward, and they're, in fact, encouraged. They don't have to, but they're encouraged by this new grant of immunity to come forward uh, to this new special office that's been set up in uh, the, uh, I think it's the Intelligence Office of the Army, isn't it? 
Well, the Pentagon has set up this special office, which involves multiple branches and multiple divisions within the Pentagon itself. It's really a multidisciplinary approach to figuring out and making public what the really is. And there have been some uh, uh, comments from some of those inside that uh, some folks are being less than forthcoming about that at this point. Right. That was that's what Steve Bassett was hopefully can still talk about. Um, he knows about that more than I do for sure. Um, but you, you have to marry that uh, with the fact that about three weeks ago now, as I recall, time flies, but about that, you know, certainly within the last month, uh, the New York Times reported that Biden uh, put out an order, uh, presumably an executive order, it didn't say explicitly, but, but put out an order from the White House that uh, as, as long as he is president, however long that is still, uh, that the um, that the government, the, he has ordered the Justice Department uh, no longer to uh, go after any member of the media who makes public uh, even classified information that they have received. And uh, this should apply to Julian Assange. I don't know if it will apply retroactively, but I would expect and hope that it would. And so if you put that together with the fact that Anybody who knows anything about UAPs uh, or, or anything related inside the government uh, or even military intelligence contractors now have this immunity provision to come forward to this special interdisciplinary uh, new office in the Pentagon. Uh, and you put that together with the fact that whoever that is who has the courage to come forward and do that can also – uh, hop over to the Washington Post. And the Washington Post reporters and editors and owners now know that they won't be touched as long as Biden's in office. And the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Fox oh. News and in, and there was all the mainstream press like they did with the Pentagon Papers. If they want to get a corner on history, find sources who are willing now with evidence to talk. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be a mainstream. It could be alternative and particularly high-level alternative press like Politico, um, which uh, Politico or BuzzFeed, they're, you know. Yeah, well, those are kind of considered mainstream. I'm, I'm thinking of really off-the-track, you know, alternative media, which will not, you know, be paid attention to. It's got to be in the mainstream for the culture to pay attention. It, it's got to be in the mainstream of very high-level uh, alternative, so-called alternative press that the mainstream will then pick up, Yeah. And, of course, the uh, the carrot at the end of the of the rainbow, mixing our metaphors madly, is a Pulitzer Prize. You know, look at how they've been dogged on, on Trump. And uh, unless Trump actually took UFO materials with him to Mar-a-Lago, which is one of my offbeat scenarios that he did this, basically. Uh-oh, him. I can't hear you now. Uh-oh. Can you hear me now? Barbara? Uh, you're back, yeah. That's weird. That, you're this, back, yeah. This is so weird. Anyway, um, we've got about 15 minutes left in this segment, so let me do this. Let me read some of what uh, uh, Stephen published, since we're having terrible problems connecting with him tonight. He's in Los Angeles. Who knows you know, what the problems are in terms of circuits or, or you know, landmines or non-landmines. Um, he, he released this statement earlier, which is uh, part of a statement by Christopher Mellon. Do you know who Mellon is, Barbara? Because I forget which government branch, high level. Well, I, I can't recall the precise government branch. He was, 
he was with um, To The Stars Academy. Yeah, but he actually is part of either the State Department or the intelligence community or some inside group. And I forget which part of the government, the federal government, he was attached to. But he issued his own statement, and uh, it's very appropriate that uh, Stephen should have sent that around. And that I can't was, hear you. That's so weird. I'm doing nothing. I'm just sitting here talking. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, so my Skype is fading in and out, too. Okay, well, let me read you what Stephen said in, uh, in this statement earlier this week. This statement just released by Christopher Mellon a few days before the 118th Congress begins is a manifesto of intent to see the resolution of the UAP ET issue in 2023. Mr. Mellon published his statement shortly after Captain Robert Salas confirmed he and other nuclear weapons tampering witnesses were asked to meet with the all-domain Anomaly Resolution Office, that's this Pentagon office devoted now to these studies, regarding UAP related to shutdowns of U.S. ICBMs. In particular, it is gratifying to read as it confirms the scenario that I, that's Stephen Bassett, have, have been relaying to the public in hundreds of interviews over the past four years. And so what follows, and I don't know whether this is universal or only Barbara can't hear me, uh, Keith is sending. Keith, you can. Uh, okay, um, your connection. Uh, it may be. It may be your connection. So what you might want. I wanna... think it is Barbara because I have heard you consistently. Okay, well that's nice okay, to know. Go ahead. Go ahead. We're going to retitle this program Mercury Retrograde. Go stand in a corner. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I've been able to hear. I've been able to hear it too. Super. Okay. This is from Christopher Mellon. You, I mean. I thank you. Who I think is uh, was with the uh, either State Department or the CIA. I'm not quite sure, but he's in a position. He's been part of this whole UAP disclosure movement since the New York Times did the famous article on the Nimitz back in uh, 2017. And this is what Mellon has now put on the record. Quote: Richard, Yes, uh, former secretary, former deputy assistant director of defense. Former Deputy the, Assistant Director of Defense, which is the Department of Defense, which means he's a Pentagon guy, and they are the ones that know where all the bodies have been buried. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Ellen's statement as of December 29th. I'm writing to correct the record after a series of misleading articles on the UAP issue by Holman Jenkins Jr. of the Wall Street Journal. Specifically, I want to correct Mr. Jenkins' assertion that, quote, the UFO commotion has largely been sustained by the U.S. defense establishment, as well as his suggestion that interest in the UAP issue is a result of, quote, intelligence officials who think their job includes promoting false and tendentious information to the American public for their own purposes. His claim, that's Jenkins, that DOD has recently found conventional explanations for most of the hundreds of UAP reported recently by U.S. military personnel is also dubious. Again, I'm reading from Christopher Mellon's statement from December 29th. First of all, quoting again, it is not clear to me what, quote, commotion Mr. Jenkins 
is referring to, since the American press has of late been observing a near total blackout on coverage of the UAP issue. For example, last week, Barbara, this refers to what you were just saying, last week, President Biden signed into law unprecedented legislation regarding UAP that could conceivably real proof of an extraterrestrial presence on Earth. Yet not a word of this incredible bipartisan effort has been reported by any of America's leading networks or newspapers. So to begin with, there is, if anything, a lack of UAP press coverage rather than a surplus. Furthermore, Mellon continues, what limited press coverage we've seen lately has been negative, seeking to belittle and discredit the UAP issue, specifically the possibility that some UAP could represent alien technology. Examples of such reporting include Mr. Jenkins' recent articles at the Wall Street Journal, another op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by UAP skeptic Seth Shostak, which incidentally falsely claims astronomers never report UAP, and finally, a New York Times op-ed in, um, published by Julian Barnes in October, claiming that anonymous DOD officials have found explanations for, quote, most recent UAP reports. Strangely, Mr. Barnes references the 144 military UAP incidents reported in a government report delivered in June of 2021. He then mentions a subsequent congressional hearing on UAP in May of 2022, yet he somehow fails to mention that the DOD officials appearing at the congressional hearing reported that the number of officially reported military UAP incidents had precipitously climbed to 400 from 144 in less than a year. Are Mr. Barnes, as anonymous DOD sources, claiming that most of the 144 UAP incidents have been explained, or most of the 400? Are the anonymous officials leaking information to the Times, the same people Mr. Jenkins claims are, quote, promoting false and tendentious information to the American public for their own purposes? I cannot help wondering, uh, Mellon goes on, wondering since we have no other recent examples of DOD or IC officials leaking UAP information to the press. In short, there is too little rather than too much commotion regarding UAP, and Mr. Jenkins has it backwards when it comes to the role of the defense establishment. He goes on. One of the things that most concerns me about the recent press coverage of UAP issues is that neither Mr. Jenkins nor Mr. Barnes nor Mr. Shostak seem to have done any serious UAP research before publishing their bold claims. In that regard, I contacted a number of military personnel involved in the Nimitz incident and other prominent military UAP cases and learned that none had been interviewed by Mr. Jenkins, Mr. Barnes, or Mr. Shostak. This is a glaring omission since their testimony forms the basis for Congress' recent 
deep engagement on the issue. Also, some of these cases are responsible for the perception that some UFP are not of human manufacture. The failure to to interview these military witnesses is also a major oversight because some of their accounts provide valid reason to believe some UAP incidents involve technology that may not be of human origin. Continuing with with, uh, Mellon. In the case of UAP, we have both a large number of fresh military reports in the hundreds, but we also have a considerable and growing amount of impressive data. If any of the hundreds of DOD UAP reports ultimately proves to be a probe from an extraterrestrial civilization, it is easily the biggest discovery in human history. I'm going to repeat that. This is Mr. Mellon, a former senior Pentagon official high in the Defense Department, who says if any of the hundreds of DOD UA reports ultimately prove to be a probe from an extraterrestrial civilization, it is easily the biggest discovery in human history. Going on. Currently, nobody has a conventional explanation to offer for the Nimitz case or hundreds of other military cases now under review. There are also hundreds of thousands of civilian UAP reports worldwide, including hundreds obtained by the military forces of civilian of countries rather, such as France, Brazil, Chile, and Russia. Recall also that we have only just begun to ask military personnel in the United States to report their sightings. We are only just beginning to analyze them. Naturally, most UAP reports will have conventional explanations, but it is intellectually dishonest to ignore the hard and well-documented cases that suggest we may have been discovered by others with whom we most likely share the galaxy. To return to Mr. Jenkins, this is Melvin continuing, let there be no doubt the defense establishment has consistently sought to downplay and avoid the UAP issue, not promote it. For those unfamiliar with the facts, let's briefly review the history. 1970, the USAF, eager to wash its hands of the UAP issue, abandoned its UAP investigation, Project Blue Book. Despite over 700 unexplained UAP reports, read UFO, the Air Force would have us believe that UAP are simply and entirely the result of, quote, a mild form of hysteria. Individuals who fabricate reports to perpetuate a hoax or seek publicity, psychopathological persons, and misidentification of natural objects, close quote. In other words, according to the Air Force in 1970, those reporting UAP were crazy, naive, or engaged in fraud. As all students of the UAP issue know, DOD and the USAF have consistently resisted serious public inquiry regarding the UAP issue. Winter of 2017, Lou Elizondo makes me aware that he's another member of this uh, inner club. In fact, he was part of the Pentagon um, 
secret program that was backed by two senators from uh, the the uh, Republicans. I think and you blew by the break. Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Well, we will continue, and then we'll just insert a break at the bottom of the hour. Luisano makes me aware, says Mellon, that restricted U.S. airspace is being routinely violated by UAP. I learned that this has been going on weekly, if not daily, for months and years. Yet the DOD and IC leadership is in the dark. Lou and his team are profoundly alarmed by the prospect of clandestine reconnaissance directed against U.S. naval strike groups and other vital U.S. military capabilities. Even more concerning, these mysterious vehicles, in some cases appearing to demonstrate capabilities beyond any anything in the U.S. inventory, to include even the highly classified reconnaissance platforms developed by DOD and the IC, by Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, the Boeing Phantom Works, and other contractors, now, summer, fall 2017. In an effort to alert the leadership to these worrisome and unexplained intrusions, I, Mellon, introduced Elizondo to two officials who reported directly to then Secretary of Defense James Mattis. Months of effort passed, but it proves impossible to get anyone at DOD to notify the Secretary or take meaningful October 2017. Lou resigns in protest after it becomes evident the obdurate OSD bureaucracy is unwilling to acknowledge the UAP issue or undertake an investigation. November 2017. In desperation, when it becomes clear DOD and the military will not respond to these alarming intrusions of U.S. military airspace, I, Mellon, reach out to Leslie Keene of the New York Times, as well as reporters from the Washington Post and Politico. The New York Times editors are highly skeptical initially, but lose authoritative testimony and the unclassified documentation and official DOD videos I provided suffice to convince them the story is real. Politico is also keenly interested, but the New York Times seems the better choice for gaining the attention of the Congress, so I, Mellon, proceed accordingly, providing them two unclassified but official DOD UAP videos and other unclassified information. The primary goal is to sound the alarm, to engage Congress in the hope they will compel DOD to take action. I also facilitate the New York Times interview with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid by Helene Cooper, the lead reporter on the New York Times story. During the interview, Senator Reid recounts details of his own frustrating efforts to get DOD to take the UAP issue seriously. Meanwhile, Lou introduces Helene Cooper, Leslie Keene, and Ralph Blumenthal of the New York Times to Commander Dave Farver and other impeccably reliable and competent Navy aviators. And on December 17, 2017, the New York Times publishes an article by Leslie, Ralph, and Helene entitled Glowing Auras and Black Money. Winter of 2017-2018. This is still Mellon. The Washington Post publishes an op-ed of mine titled, The Military Keeps Encountering UFOs, Why Doesn't the Pentagon Care? In this op-ed, the first of many, 
I propose Congress ask the Secretary of Defense for an all-source study of the UAP issue. I also use the opportunity to release another unclassified but official DOD UAP video. Meanwhile, I introduced Luizondo to staff from the Senate Armed Services and Intelligence Committees, and in turn, Lou and I introduced Senate staffers to a number of Navy aviators, including Dave Barver, Ryan Graves, and Alex Dietrich, as well as other DOD personnel and contractors who have encountered UAP. Impressed, the Senate staff arranged briefings by the Navy aviators for committee members. Bill Nelson, who later becomes NASA director in the Biden administration, is among the senators who attended these briefings and is deeply and understandably impressed by the testimony of the Navy aviators. Hence, current, NASA's current unprecedented interest in the UAP issue. 2019, DOD acknowledges the authenticity of the unclassified UAP videos that I provided to the New York Times and the Post. Lou, Tom DeLong, and I do what we can to raise awareness to include multiple press interviews and participation in a History Channel TV series called Unidentified. For the first time in recent history, perhaps ever, active duty U.S. military personnel are permitted to publicly discuss their UAP encounters on camera. 2020, Congress, frustrated by DOD's lack of action and responsiveness, directs DOD to create a UAP organization and establish UAP reporting procedures. This is occurring because DOD and the IC have not been forthcoming on the UAP issue. The USAF in particular resists providing UAP information even when the inquiries originate with the Deputy Secretary of Defense. After two years of making introductions and engaging in discussions, writing op-eds, and even drafting and posting draft report language online, the Senate Intelligence Committee adopts my recommendation to request an unclassified UAP report from the DNI. That's the uh, Director of, Na of uh, National Intelligence. 2021. This is Mellon continuing. In response to perceived DOD foot dragging, Congress goes further, demanding DOD provide additional information and, among other things, prepare a UAP science report and a UAP collection plan. Meanwhile, the unclassified UAP report requested by the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2020 arrives in June. It cites 144 military UAP incidents to, since 2004. Only one was solved, that of the balloon. The report failed to include NORAD uncorrelated track reports or space or undersea anomalies, but it is a start. Of course, the document also in, does not include the estimated 90% of UAP incidents that are never reported due to fear of negative repercussions on careers and reputations. Nevertheless, the unclassified UAP reports confirm the reality of hundreds of UAP incidents, most captured by multiple sensors. Although many or perhaps even all 
UAP might prove to have conventional explanations, to date none of the 400 UAP incidents identified by DOD are definitively linked to Russia, Chinese, or U.S. classified aircraft. The government UAP data therefore strengthens the possibility that some UAP may be manifestations of technology beyond Earth. Yet the media almost universally conveys a no aliens message in their coverage of the UAP report rather than observing that the preliminary data is consistent with the ET hypothesis. 2022, Mrs. Mellon's continuing. Congress strengthens the UAP legislation in the intelligence and defense authorization bills to include unprecedented new provisions that provide whistleblower protections for anyone aware of UAP programs that may not have been briefed to Congress. It also directs a review of all UAP intelligence documents going back to World War II, as well as requiring DHS, that's the Department of Homeland Security, DOD, and the IC to identify and share with Congress any non-disclosure agreements related to UAP. Already in December of 2022, people are stepping forward to avail themselves of this whistleblower protection. Again, let me read that. As of Mellon, as of a couple of days ago, apropos of Barbara's overview of the NDAA, already in December of 2022, people are stepping forward to avail themselves of the whistleblower protection in the 2023 National Defense and Authorization Act signed by the presidents just a few days ago. And that is the end. And that is the end of uh, Mellon's statement. Yes, Barbara. Yeah, I just want to uh, point out that uh, kind of two thirds of the way through this chronology by Mellon, he mentioned that he was the source of two unclassified documents, um, including the Navy uh, videos that were given to the New York Times. But given Biden's new executive order, um, they would, they, he could have uh, given them classified documents. <laughs> and there was nothing that the, uh, that the government would do to, to prevent the New York Times from publishing them. Yeah, Stephen goes on after uh, Mellon's commentary. He said, this is an admittedly cursory and limited version of the recent history of the UAP issue based on the narrow window of, um, I, I guess it is just continuing. You know. Anyway, it's just kind of a summation of what he just said before. Um, what I think we ought to do now, given that we're having serious issues with getting Stephen connected, and this is the kind of centerpiece of what he was going to discuss. I think Mellon coming forward and basically saying that all the mainstream press on this issue are lying. I'll say it. He doesn't. But I'll say it indicates to me that not only, Barbara, is this issue the most historical in, in human history, but the resistance to crossing this finish line, to making this data generally public is the most important issue politically facing us in 2023 
Trump's trials or indictments or whatever notwithstanding, and I am predicting, this is going to be going way out on a limb, that what Trump did in taking all those top secret documents, including documents relating to this issue, he basically was trying to buy himself an insurance policy. And if the government is consistent, those that are wanting to keep us in the dark will prevail over those wanting to make all this public and Trump will not be indicted. He will not face a court except maybe locally in New York and Georgia, but on the Mar-a-Lago documents case and maybe even, you know, uh, uh, 1-6, he will escape because he has the ultimate blackmail, which is revealing the truth on something that no one at the deep state level appears to want to reveal, and they're doing everything they can to keep the situation completely clouded, completely murky, and completely in the dark. But I agree that um, he almost certainly uh, retained some of those highly classified documents. Let's remind your listeners that some of those documents, according to the Department of Justice, were so highly classified, national security classifications, that they had great difficulty finding any attorneys uh, with uh, the highest uh, the, a high enough level of clearance in order to even read them, uh, to go through them. <laughs> so I agree with you that he probably retained a good number of them uh, basically as a gray mail operation, uh, a cock gun at the, uh, at the uh, you know, the, the head of the Department of, of Justice, uh, basically saying, okay, you know, if you go after me, I'll release these. And that's one of the main reasons that they're so obsessed to get them all. Well, there is an actual precedent historically going back through Vietnam, through Iran-Contra, all the weird activities that the CIA did in Latin America, where certain um, protagonists who were heavily involved, they basically held the government blackmail so they could not be prosecuted and because of the incredible sensitivity of the documents and the on the record information they could provide to the press they're basically they they, they skipped indictment they were not indicted they were never, never brought to trial it was quietly deep sixed so that that information never became public i think that's what trump has done in this situation and yeah, I agree with you. It's called Grayman. Yeah, black. yeah. And, of course, it's a very bold and uh, blatant political uh, prediction. And, of course, in politics, uh, you can always be proven wrong when, if and when people change their mind. Um, however, however, Trump no longer has the vast majority of those documents he was using for gray mail, if that's what he was doing. And it's one thing to uh, have a cop gun that, uh, where, where the government doesn't know what you have. Um, and they, of course, they're going to they're going to fear the worst, and therefore it's it's a great deterrent um, to going after him to to actually bringing criminal indictments against him. However, there are grand juries. It's, it's grand juries are serious, and there are ongoing multiple grand juries that are looking into whether to uh, issue an indictment to request the U.S. attorney to issue an indictment. Hey, Barbara. Yeah. Uh, a, this, is, this is Ron Gerbron. If you would all yeah, identify yourselves, because voices on Skype sound similar sometimes. Okay. Uh, I was just waiting for a chance to ask Barbara this question anyway. Uh, well, it's a two, we'll make it a two-parter. One, 
could you, uh, Barbara, explain to everybody what a grand jury really is? Because we don't have, under you know normal circumstances for the citizenry, uh, professional jurors like they do in France or Britain has them as well. Uh, they, uh, you know, they. So when they say they have empowered a grand jury. That doesn't mean, I don't think, that there are uh, jury rooms full of uh, pundits waiting around to be used. They have to they have to pick people to put them on this. I mean, it that's right. Just seen. like just like a regular grand jury, yeah. It's yeah, a, it's well, that's, that's, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's no. The, it's not. Yeah, it's not the jury of your peers things. So there's a control mechanism there. But what's been bothering me about the uh, disclosure release stuff? Uh, and this might relate to <clears throat> Trump. See, I didn't yell at you, Richard. Uh, the, uh, if he's, uh, if some of the documents that were there at Mar-a-Lago were not just to put in the Trump Museum in the future, uh, say, see what was going on while I was in charge, uh, but what happens to crucial documents that reveal things that people are waiting for? They, they get inadvertently shredded or they disappear, or yeah, we loaded them in the milk truck that was parked outside instead of the armored car, and we don't know where they went. You know, they have all kinds of excuses to make the stuff disappear. But anything that Trump took home, uh, that's got layers of records of its existence and its, uh, you know, its subject matter. And so in a sense, it protects them from being inadvertently accidentally shredded. Well, that's interesting. Well, to, to answer your main question, what is a grand jury? In this case, we're talking about federal criminal grand juries. And the most important thing for people to know about federal criminal grand juries is that they are in the Constitution itself, in the text of the Constitution, in, in uh, covered by both the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment. And there is an incredibly important and foundational Supreme Court decision by none other than Scalia, who is arguably the most conservative justice ever of the Supreme Court, even more so than Clarence Thomas or Alito today. Wow. And was certainly their hero and their mentor. Um, this is the uh, the case of U.S. versus Williams or Williams versus U.S. I always get it backwards. I think it's U.S. versus Williams. And in this case, um, the bottom line uh, uh, decision by Scalia um, was that the uh, federal criminal grand juries, uh, because they are in the Constitution and they are separate from the explicitly mentioned three other branches of government, the, the ruling was that federal criminal grand juries are a fourth people's branch of the federal government, co-equal with the presidency, the executive, with the uh, courts, uh, and uh, with the, um, the what's the other one? Oh, Congress, of course. Um, and that and that they are their own separate, independent, sovereign branch uh, of government. And so, to answer your question about what it is, uh, when there there are in almost every jurisdiction uh, where there are at least 40 million people within that jurisdiction of the U.S. attorney, for instance, in the Second uh, Circuit in the Covers Manhattan for the World Trade Center attack on 9-11, 
Uh, if you've got, as I recall, the figure, it, it changes over time with the census, but I think it's now 40 million people or above. They have to have a U.S. attorney, and that U.S. attorney is required by federal law to present any evidence that any citizen or anyone, for that matter, you don't have to be a citizen, but that's the most important uh, people who could evidence of crime to a sitting criminal grand jury. So if you've got a jurisdiction with a U.S. attorney that has 40 million people or more, I believe today, the number, um, you are required to have a standing uh, sitting criminal grand jury in your jurisdiction. So in that case, uh, yes, hmm. there are usually 23 members of that grand jury and a foreman. And these, are, and these are picked from ordinary citizen ordinary, uh, voter rolls. From ordinary citizens on a random basis, like from DMV ah. records or voting records. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And they rotate. They have, a, they have a limited lifespan unless they're renewed. So it's not the same people. It rotates, and so you get new people all the time looking at these issues that are. Well, they're not. They're not going to rotate. They're, they're going to keep a sitting criminal grand jury in effect um, throughout a single case. Right. They're right. not going to. They're not going to substitute the new grand jury and start all over. No. Uh, maybe my my wording was inaccurate. I meant in terms of over time, there are multiple grand juries. Each one has a has a, a drop dead date depending upon the case. But it can be extended. Exactly, exactly. On the order of the judge. And the judge uh, normally, if not always, selects the foreman of the jury who has phenomenal power. The foreman really has too much power uh, in the current system. But anyway, that's, that's the gist of uh, federal criminal grand juries. And our case right now, uh, before the Supreme Court, that they will decide whether to take it in five days on January 6th. Uh, is about returning the power of individual citizens of the United States to mandatorily require, as federal law already does, passed by Congress, to pass all of our evidence of crimes to a sitting or, re or convened federal criminal grand jury. Well, given that this is kind of what they're – I'm, I'm learning a whole bunch of legal terms by following what's been going on the last four or five years – Given that this is kind of like black letter law, meaning there's very little wiggle room for misinterpretation, like does the chairman of the House committee have the right to uh, the, you know, Trump's tax returns? Uh, Trump fought him all the way up to the Supreme Court over a couple of years, and ultimately the Supreme Court decided that the committee won and Trump lost because the law says clearly the chairman of the committee has the right over right. any well, citizen. Right. Well, the law is what the Supreme Court says it is. Okay. Well, but but see, there is stare decisis precedent, and uh, that, that's been thrown out the window. Well, over and over yes, uh, yes, and no. It's like it's there's, there's this gray area. I'm just looking at this. Um, if you have five conservative members who are ostensibly you know, strict constructionists when it comes to the Constitution. No, there are six now, not five. There are six, okay. Then six out of nine. Do you have, in fact, a preponderance of people that would tend to, as with the Trump case on taxes, vote with the letter of the law? Well, that's what we're hoping, that they'll vote with the letter of the Constitution. But law they? should be more than hope. That's why you write things down. 
Yeah, I understand that, but there's, they are political as well. We'll see what happens. Well, all right. When, when this goes through, let's, let's, we've got a few minutes till the bottom of the hour. Tell us about procedurally how this works. You had to submit a written brief, or are you represented by a live attorney to argue before live justices as to whether this should be a case? Good question. Um, you can read our petition. It's called a petition for cert. It's short for a word like certiori. That's, uh, I'm sure it's Latin. Yeah, it's like Latin, certiori, yeah. Yeah, meaning yeah certiori. Yeah. Um, but we, we filed a petition for cert, which you can read every word of, uh, right close to the top of the homepage on our website, which is LC, like stands for Lawyers Committee, LC4FOR911.org. That's LCFOR911.org. Just read our entire petition. So we submitted that petition on uh, November 3rd, as I recall the date. Uh, and um, sometime in early December, I think December 5th, something like that, uh, the court got back with, uh, with a, an official document saying that they had recorded our cert petition and that they were going to be uh, holding the conference. Uh, to decide whether to accept the case on January 6th. Um, so um, are we going to be able to have McHarrison, our litigation director, or any other attorney there for that conference? No, that is only the justices themselves. So they have a virtual reality phone call, Skype, whatever, and or they're all in the same building there in, at the court. And they they're, go- they're meeting in person again. Say again? They're meeting in person Yes, again. yes, I, I, I kind of remember that. Okay, so they have a bunch of these documents that come in, I presume, right? Well, they have thousands. Last year, they had over 8,000 requests for cert, petitions for cert, and they only accepted about 75. But are you one of the thousands, or are you of a higher tier level where it's another procedure prior to a final uh, decision? So that's a very good question. Based upon the content of our petition, we should be at the highest level. There are three there are three categories of cert petitions that, by their own policy and precedent and tradition, the Supreme Court is most is supposed to be most likely to accept. Ours definitely falls into that category. Because what um, it, it goes into fundamental constitutional issues. It, it's a question of uh, yes, fundamental constitutional. Two, three things, as I recall. Fundamental constitutional issues. Um, uh, cases where there have been differing opinions by different appeals courts. Um, in this case, I don't think that applies. Um, in fact, one of the paradoxes is that uh, there was a decision, a previous uh, decision a few years ago, by the Second Circuit in New York, which is where our case originated, um, the jurisdiction for the World Trade Center attacks on 9-11, um, that actually found in favor of what we're arguing. And then the very same court uh, went against its own precedent uh, in our case because they are really trying to bury the facts of ever becoming official on about 9-11. Hmm. But lightning could strike, right? And the other... The other um, uh, qualification for being at its highest level of, of where they should accept it um, for this term um, is if it's a matter of extreme or high public interest and importance. Well, that certainly qualifies it. 
certainly the truth about 9-11, evidence that the official story of who attacked America on 9-11 is false should fall into that category. Well, again, going back to Rick, as we started the show with the physics, if that trend curve is correct, then it should hit the fan and it could begin after the 6th of January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We don't know. But uh, we're very hopeful. Uh, we're, we're, as we say, optimistic. We're, we're cautiously optimistic, but we're not going to give up. Even if they don't take the case, we'll go to another venue. Fascinating. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. We're still trying to get Stephen. Uh, we're having impossible problems. I'm thinking that this is not uh, statistically just Mercury retrograde, but I think we got the crucial information out, thanks to you, Barbara. Um, when we come back, we're going to have a free-for-all. We've got Robert Morningstar, who has been incredibly patient, but actually videoed a real UAP, UFO, ET craft, something over Central Park. And we've got video and images, and then we'll open it up to Ruggiero's joining us from Britain. Andrew Curry's supposed to be on tap. Ron is with us, Ron Gerbron in San Diego. And yours truly. And Georgia uh, Lambert. Oh, that's right. I forgot Georgia. How could I forget Georgia? I don't know. Because it's on a Sunday night late and I'm being snowed by technical <clears throat> issues, gremlins. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. You know, given the fact that we have so many in the Enterprise family, and we've had real problems with Stephen, which we will now have a week to work out. Uh, Mercury will be in some different phase of retrograde. And we've got a bunch of other people that wanted to be part of tonight. And, you know, you have to, some can and some can't. We might do this again next Sunday night live. Saturday, we're going to do the moon and the bean 
uh, painting and how we raise funds for the political fight of our lives to, as you can see, uh, cut across the headwinds against disclosure. And we seem to be having help from uh, foreign governments like the South Koreans. What are they up to? They're showing us astonishing stuff. Look at those images. Those are real data, real images, real amazing insights into the ancient dome around the moon. Regardless of all those people who say, oh, that's impossible. No, it's not. Look at the damn data. Anyway, um, let's see now. We've got Georgia with us, I believe. And Andrew, you are with us. And Robert's been terribly patient. So, Robert, let's go to you first, okay? Robert Morningstar, our yes. civilian intelligence analyst who has credits and background too numerous to mention. Go to the website. Take a look. Robert, you're a regular. You're part of the family. What do you got for tonight in terms of what's going to happen? Thank you. And uh, wishing everybody a happy new year. And I uh, thought we'd have more time for prognostications, but I would. We'll do nice part two. We'll definitely do part two next Sunday. Yes. Take the music off. I did. No, still playing. Not here. Anyway, I, can, I, I, I like background music. And uh, this, uh, on December 17th, I had a remarkable experience. I had my ninth UFO encounter at basically the same place. And um, well, once uh, at the same time as the previous one, four o'clock in the afternoon at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in New York City. Since 2007, I've had nine observations and encounters with UFOs there. And it was wonderful, uh, I don't know, synchronicity, chance or choice or what. I was walking to uh, the park with my friend and I had my camera loaded. For the first time in three months, I took the camera, the video camera out. And I said to my friend, hey, you know, we haven't shot video in about three months. Maybe today's the day we'll capture a UFO on camera. Ha, ha, ha really facetiously, you know, and then I went, I started shooting as I do a promenade in Riverside Park, not Central Park. It's a much smaller, but more beautiful park because it has the Hudson River and a, uh, a panoramic view of New Jersey and big sky, as I call it. I shot a bunch of videos and then I came upon the flag and the flag was out. The, the, the breeze, the, the wind was stiff. And both flags were out. We fly in New York City the, the American flag, national banner, and below it a black flag with a white circle and a, a head in it, silhouette. And it's the MIA flag, missing in action. So New York always flies the two of them. So they were stiff out, straight on the wind. And I said, I want to take a picture of the flags. You know, they're really you know, well displayed today because of the wind. So I opened my camera. And my camera is a, um, a video camera, not an iPhone. So when you flip out the screen, it turns the camera on. So I was looking down at the camera. I flipped open the screen. I looked at the screen. I framed the flags as I wanted them. And I pressed the button. And less than two seconds after I started recording, I saw a black form go right across really fast, really dark. And I said to myself, wow, that was a big bird pretty dark bird too, you know? So, uh, but you know something, my cognitive dissonance happened because I said to myself, if, if this bird was that big and that close to me, I should have felt it. But this was just a momentary, you know, reasoning. Like, 
I should have felt that bird. I should have felt the flap. I should have heard something, but I didn't. Long story short, 10 hours later, late at night, I said to myself, let me take a look at these, this video or these videos, Christmas lights and New York at Christmas time, blah, blah, blah. So I turn it on and I see this thing go by, the thing I thought was a bird. And I thought, what? It was just too fast. It had... It, it left two shapes, one at the entry and one at the exit. And I said, what the hell is that? That's no bird. So then I slowed the film down. I think I showed it to you about two weeks ago. I slowed the film yes, down. Yes. And frame by frame, I saw what I think is the best UFO video of a UFO over New York or flying by New York that anyone's ever taken. It was just, it was either chance or their choice. They showed themselves. And in, it crossed the sky in seven frames, and that is uh, seven frames at 25 frames per second. So it crossed the sky in 0.28, hundredths of a second. So then I went frame by frame, and I captured seven frames. In the first frame, it's the nose of the object that appears. Then uh, five frames six frames where it makes the transit across the flagpole and formed the cross. So I included uh, two frames because unfortunately on the solstice, my computer crashed just as I was finishing off a video that I was planning to post on the solstice for Christmas, then for New Year's. But my, uh, the crash was really severe and it's taken me 10 days to recover the data. So I have captured, uh, I extracted two frames as it crosses the flagpole. And it was supposed to be my Christmas card. I, I split the frames in half and joined them. And as the UFO crosses, it forms a cross with the flagstaff. While I'm here, I'd like to thank our friend um, uh, Holger Eisenberg for sending us that picture uh, of the transit of Sirius across the, the, the median line at exactly midnight last night, he saw some correlation there forming a cross in the sky. Be that as it may, this is a unique experience. It took me completely by surprise, and I think it was by their choice. On June 1st of 2019, I had an even closer encounter with a UFO that transformed from a sphere into a flying saucer and flew around the monument waving at me. And people say they get messages, telepathic messages from UFOs. So as this UFO flew away toward Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, it was waving its wings. Let's call it wings. It was oscillating right, left, right, left. The message I got was, happy flying, Robert. So <laughs> I took From one heart. pilot to another. Yeah, from one pilot to another. Now, um, the, the pictures speak for themselves. You, you, the Enterprise crew, got to see the video as I stopped the frame, and you saw how fast this thing uh, went Well, the by. thing that struck me, remember, you sent it to me, and I took it into my programs, and I did some work, and I you know, did a bunch of stuff on it. It's clear that it's going behind the flagpole. Yeah, exactly. That's yep. the crucial datum, because from that, Absolutely. it cannot be a bird. Cannot, cannot, cannot. It it could be no, Superman, but it cannot be a bird. That's right. Now uh, we have very little time, and so I want to make a couple of comments uh, on what. Well, uh, we're going to do part two next Sunday. See how this this kind yeah, of well, unfolds. Let me just say this. 
was a, uh, the regarding Trump and, and the documents, uh, well, we don't know what he took. It's a good hypothesis. He may have taken the, the most serious ones, which would mean would be the JFK assassination files and the... I disagree US, on that. Uh, I think the UFO well, UAP thing is the... Let's save some time here. I want to get this information out and I want to get off because I want to go to sleep. <laughs> the signing of the NDAA by Biden gives him protection as a whistleblower. If it's retroactive, so I, I was thinking that a moment ago. If it's retroactive. Oh, I said it, that's good. Okay, let's go on to the next thing. The U.S. government has been lying about UFOs since the 1940s, and in fact, before the 1940s, because of fear of the consequences that were uh, following War of the World. They have painted themselves into a corner, many, a Gordian knot of legislation. The U.S. government ceded authority over UFO research and information in 1969, Richard Nixon, divested the U.S. government of its authority over UFOs in order to clear the decks for what he wanted to do. And what he did was transfer the authority to the military-industrial complex. And a new agency was formed called the Defense Intelligence Security Command, also known as DISC or DISCO, when you add organization to it. And that is the group and that seized power. And what are flying saucers known as? UFOs. DISC! DISC! Yeah, of course, that's it's, obvious. It's a, it's a, it's a Dickinsonian pun. You know, I think UAP is, is bull crap. Oh, of course it's it is. It's actually a joke on all of us because the right way to pronounce it is UAPs. They're not flying saucer, UAPs. They are UAPs. So I say go to hell, okay? Go to hell. I'm tired of it. And another note, I would like to commend Senator Marco Rubio for having had the guts and, as the Spanish say, the cojones to take up the, the fight. And I'll tell you, when he did that interview about two years ago, maybe it was a year and a half ago, he did a, an interview, I guess, with CBS. The guy was trembling. He was in, he was in deep stress because it took so much courage to stand up there and say, yeah, we have to find out about UFOs. And obviously, if he's saying that, he believes in UFO, which has been a stigma on anyone, everyone who has broached the subject in and out of government. So the government painted itself into a corner, uh, specifically uh, tightly in 1969. But in 1947, a group of astronomers were hired by Project Sign to track the motherships, which were deploying the scout ships that were descending. And, uh, and we're talking about Donald Menzel and company. They tracked the motherships coming and going from Saturn's moon Titan. So there's something uh, very, very, uh, well, sinister about it to me. The association of Saturn and Satan and dark side. With regard to liabilities, the U.S. government faces tremendous liability unless they write a law to you know, clear themselves because they've lied to everyone about the alien presence, alien abductions, cattle mutilations, human mutilations. More than 40,000 head of cattle have been mutilated in the same way, not only in the United States, but Argentina, Japan, Europe, 
and they kept denying it. And the last thing I'll say is every once in a while, the FBI tells the truth, but they tell it like your grandmother said. What they say, they, they did a investigation of cattle mutilations and they said, this is the work of a satanic cult. Yeah, 40,000 head of cattle in the United States and 70,000 head of cattle in Europe and uh, Argentina. What satanic cult is capable of doing that? It just gives you a hint of why I said that these crafts that I associate because of Donald Menzel, his, uh, his observations in 1947, that they were coming and going from Saturn. And we all know about the ships that are embedded in the rings of Saturn. The Ring Makers of Saturn is a very important book. So uh, the government is in a bind, and it's trying to retract the authority that it gave to the military-industrial complex and DISC. And you know, when people seize power or get power, they are loath to give it back. So this is the internecine war that is happening within the government, the DOD, uh, and the military-industrial complex. So that's the way I see it, and um, I hope we come to a resolution. And I'll put my video up against anybody and say, hey, <laughs> prove it. Prove, prove it's a cloud traveling thousands of miles an hour and crossing the sky and point two eight. Well, did you figure out a minimum velocity if it's just beyond the flagpole? Well, I said thousands of miles an hour. <laughs> I can't. I haven't. We, we don't know how far behind the flagpole. No, but I, if it's just behind, in other words, a minimum distance would give you a minimum well, velocity. Distance, well, actually, I would consider having been over the river and perhaps a quarter mile away. Okay. So we, you and I can work on the on the. Yeah, uh, that will. I, I will do that in my copious, okay. copious, copious spare time before next Sunday night. I will yeah. figure out the minimum velocity of Robert's UFO over Central Park. Okay, Andrew, are you no, with Riverside, us? Riverside. Riverside. Don't lead to the wrong place. Riverside. Yeah, you're looking <laughs> in the other direction. Yes, yeah, so you're right. Okay. <laughs> if if disclosure happens, if the UFOs come to New York, I think it's going to be at the Soldiers and Sailors Monument because really? there's no perfect place. Okay. As far as a landmark is concerned, of historic importance and signification. Your mileage may differ. Anyway, Andrew, are you with us? Okay. Have a good night. Good night, Robert. Happy New Year. Andrew, are you with us? Yes, I am. Right? There you Hi. are. Okay, turn up yeah. your gain a bit. Okay. Is that getting better? Yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, well, thank you. I know it's we're getting close to the edge here, but I, I do want to acknowledge um, something. Um, I know we've had this unfolding Alan Bean, uh, well, what we believe is a revelation, and maybe he is the anointed one to share, you know, the information of what's really on the moon. And I just want to uh, go back to, so Richard, the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame. That's where his this mural is. That this reaching to the stars mural, correct? I That's believe, yes. Yeah at, uh, yeah, at Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral, yeah. And I just want to – I know, we, I know um, uh, Barbara was talking about making a purchase of uh, a limited edition print. That's awesome. Thank you, Barbara, and for what you're going to do. But I do want to acknowledge that it was Laura London, friend of the show, who did bring this to our attention. And it might even have been her photographs that sort of got part well, of Well, she brought this specific painting, not the bean concept no, 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 that he yes. was a leaker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah she was there in person and actually photographed it against yes. the girders 
mounted behind the podium in the same hall where they've got a full-size Saturn V. That's where they yes. built this thing. Yeah, and we were trying to figure out just – folks, this might be a little minutia, but we were trying to figure out whether it was a real – you know, uh, a real painting. Size, real painting or if it was a uh, – facsimile. Like yeah, I seem to remember in his book – that he did some really big art murals, the kind of stuff that uh, Kintia used to do, you know, on huge canvas or not canvas, but masonite or whatever. And I think it looks like one of those. It could be. I, I it, it, to me, it looks like it's it's a facsimile. But either way, Richard, it's a fascinating study. It continues on. It's another thread. and it elevates it's, being of all the astronauts. Yeah. So every damn tourist who goes to see a Saturn V, the astronaut who did the painting of man going beyond the stars, that's an Alan Bean painting. Exactly. So, yeah, that was the little bit I wanted to get in and just wish everybody a very happy new year. And um, I know we don't really have time to get into prognostications and stuff. but We'll save that all for next Sunday. I mean, it's obvious the show writes itself or Skype does or Mercury Retrograde does or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Um, Let's see, who else have I – I think Ruggiero had to go. I think he has a, a day job in Britain, and it's time to, for him to go to work. So he'll be with us next Sunday night. Uh, Richard? Yes, Ron, you're there. Yeah, I got a bizarre, I've got a bizarre thought. This, this came up today. Oh, cool. So it's, it's, cool. I it's, love this. No, yeah, I know. It's not the, no, no, no. It wasn't the fact that I checked my sources and found that nobody seems to have any idea what the Koreans are up to. Uh, the, uh, you know, why it's been so, um, why they've, Deathly silent for humans not to brag about when they do something nobody in their country, their nationality, their race, whatever, has ever done in history, and they go and do it, and they don't utter their damn mouths and say a word, something weird is going on. Right. Well, here's a brand new Mandela effect possibility. I'm scratching my head over this because it's – I came out to California in 1965. This is not really arguable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. It's a hard date. And uh, prior to that, uh, I spent much of my time indoors in my room uh, in a rather large house. But, I, I mean, I'm very, it was all stuffed with books. And I belonged to this um, printing stuff uh, outfit they used to have. It was – well, they would send you books. You had some – ability to choose amongst them but you you agreed to get like six bucks six books a month or something and uh, i was part of that oh those are called those are called book clubs yeah okay just a book club yes yes one of those well uh and i mine was all arcane and strange stuff generally well i got a uh copy of a book by uh, uh santiana uh called hablet's mill Oh, yes, of course. Rather famous book. And uh, I remember, yeah, I remember taking it out of the box and admiring the cover, uh, which is just, it's a painting of, it's kind of a Yggdrasil, a world tree growing out of the, out of the earth. And it's Mm -hmm. got a blue background and it's a, you know, perfectly nice cover. Yeah, for those who don't know, Hamlet's Mill is written by two amazing scholars, one at at MIT, and I forget where the other one was, a man and a woman, and they basically look back through all the written history, and they have taken the myths 
and they believe that ancient peoples, 6,000 years, 8,000, 10,000, recorded the procession of the earth, which was not formally noted until Hipparchus uh, relatively recently, uh, a few hundred years BC, thousands of years ago, and they immortalize it in all these mythologies from cultures all over the world. And the reason it was called Hamlet's Mill is that one of them has to do with a giant mill grinding and grinding reality out as fine flour out of a cosmic mill. Right. For the academically oriented, it's a, it was a counterpoint to uh, Joseph Campbell's work on uh, yes, yes. mythology and uh, a, somewhat of a refutation of parts of it and so forth. Anyway, it's a very chewy book. It's like over 500 pages. And I said, whoa, this is okay. This is, this is hefty. Uh, so I remember all of that standing in my room in Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, I was looking for another copy of it because it became relevant to me to want to read it again. And after uh, I, it's been years since I had a copy. So I was looking it up. Every source I looked at, it was published in 1979. So you could not have seen it in 1965. But I had a copy 14 years earlier. In this that. timeline, you could not have seen it, you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I don't know what other uh, ramifications that has, but this one, because of the visual memory, you know, the fact that it, I couldn't have seen it anywhere else. I know where I was in 1979 or even at preprint stage in 77, uh, you know, when theoretically it could have existed uh, or I could have seen it. Uh, and I know exactly where I was and what I was doing. And no, 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 that's not what it was because I remember where I put it on the bookshelf and every other damn thing. And so I said, wow, this is a weird one. <laughs> so if anybody has if anybody has any thoughts about that, because it was, definitely was not written uh, in this timeline by then, uh, because it was that second name on there, and her name was not on the copy that I remember. The visual memories. Von Deschend, and what was her name? Yeah, the other her, uh, Hirsch Herschel or Hirsch. So Google is your friend. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to look. It's easy enough to find. Descent Alana. Yeah. Ah, thank you. No, de, no, you're thinking of Santiana, who who's no, 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 uh, no, no, title no, 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 no. He's saying the other author. Uh, that's not the name that I saw earlier today. Anyway, that's not worth getting bogged down in. Anybody that's curious can look it up. But I'm just saying that a uh, I remember the cover of the hardback, and there was a picture of it on eBay or some Amazon or someplace when I was looking today. And I said, yeah, that's the cover, but I don't remember that it had both names on it, uh, which is a minor point. You know, that could have been corrected in a printing, you know, success, success of printing or something. Uh, but it also explained why it was such a chewy book, because it was uh, mostly, well, according to the this timeline, uh, he died in uh, 1988. Uh, so... Uh, it was. It's mostly his publishers putting stuff back together, you know. So it's written by the editors. Anyway, that's an oddity for the year and the retrograde everything that's going on. Well, given uh, that the I, physics is modulated by precession in the Earth-Moon system and in the solar system, the fact that yeah. that book stands out is incredibly anomalous. That you remember it decades before it uh, officially appeared. Decade and a half. Yeah. That's uh, that's not trivial. That's central no, to the conversation I, I, tonight. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody listening has, 
uh, is, you know, has any thoughts congruent to that, that I'd, I'd be very interested because it's, uh, that's, this one's, this one's strange to me. I mean, the Mandela event altogether, I could, lots of people had the exact same experience or analogous ones relative to him not being dead when he was, when in this timeline he was. Uh, but, uh, this is such a major leap. I'm going, wow, that's a lot. And, you know, I'm personally fascinated with syncretizing ancient mythologies, getting them all, uh, to some sort of common. Framework. Okay. We've got about three minutes till the anyway. end of the show. Anybody have some stunning last thoughts prior to part two they're, next Sunday? They're stunned. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara's never at a lost row. Oh, Georgia. Did Georgia no. ever join us? Where is Georgia? I don't know. And next week we have to do a a basket just to get in. Yeah, we're definitely going to have Stephen. We'll we'll make basset basset basset. Yeah. (laughs) I could hear him in the background on my earphones. I could not hear anything. So you know what? Maybe let's not let's not spend the closing few minutes talking about housekeeping. I hate housekeeping. You know, this is obviously. uh, well, you, that's, a, that's a well-known thing. I hate housekeeping. You should see my house. You think you hate housekeeping. Okay. Uh, 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 Barbara, so, any any thoughts? Please. I don't hear Barbara. I think Barbara may have left us. Uh, um, she's probably just mute, muted. No, no, I, I, I think she's no. gone. Maybe you oh, and I get, well, maybe, well we got, uh, you know, uh, 45 seconds to close out the show. I'm thinking, <clears throat> based on what the Koreans are doing, and all the other yes. missions that are headed, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that will be uh, reloaded in for next Sunday night's Radio with Pictures, that we're going to see a breakthrough on the lunar front first, and that's because that will stand still. Different nations, different spacecraft, different observers, and don't forget, mm-hmm. we've got Elon Musk taking nine tourists to the moon in the Starship, where we should be having a major... uh uh, test of the Starship in the next couple of weeks from Texas, launching into orbit, which, of course, all of this outside government, civilian people who don't sign their own NDAs, uh, breakthroughs are going to come from. And on that note, we are literally out of time. I want to thank everyone tonight who participated. A very turbulent, very chopped up, very mercury retrograde forecast of what's going to happen in 2023 next sunday we'll do it again we'll probably include more people because we have a huge global family and saturday we're doing the moon alan bean the paintings and i'll have a couple of surprises so until then same time same bat channel remember third star on the left straight on till morning good night everyone and happy new year Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 